And so it was always going to be like Savage, there was no uh, like... Can you believe it, eh? with a surname like Savage, at the time I was going to call the wines Alexander Hill. My yeah. second name is Alexander, and thank God I didn't do that, because that would have been a rookie mistake. <laughs> so, the, you know, the, when, we, when we went about... We, Especially if there's no hill, you know? Like. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no. Hello, and welcome to the XNMO Wine Co. podcast. I am David Clark. The purpose of this podcast is to document the stories in South African wine. We are interested in how we are, to where we are today, and where we are going tomorrow. Thank you very much for joining us. Ex Animo Wine Co. is a wine distributor based in Cape Town. Please go to our website, exanimo.co.za, for more on what we do. As you are probably aware, a version of prohibition has been instituted in South Africa, which forbids the sale or transport of alcohol, not ideal for a wine merchant. So if you'd like to support us in this time of turmoil, please consider buying an Ex Animo Wine Co. tracker cap, pictures of which can be found on our Instagram page. They are 300 rand each, including delivery to anywhere within South Africa. Today on the podcast, we have Duncan Savage, owner and winemaker of Savage Wines. He made his name as the winemaker of Cape Point Vineyards, who specialise in Sauvignon Blanc. Duncan's production facility, originally set up by Tim Martin, is in the industrial Cape Town suburb of Salt River. I interviewed him there in the now vacant warehouse above his winery. Note, there is an echo and some street noise, but not too much. Duncan is one of the good guys of the industry, very jovial and easygoing. I don't think there are many people with anything negative to say about him, other than his wines sell out too quickly. As you will hear, Duncan has been making wines for almost 20 years and has been has built one of the stronger brands in the South African new wave. I wanted to talk to Duncan about this journey and about his new 2019 wines about to be released. It is a long one, as Duncan is a great storyteller and has some very well thought out insights into winemaking, marketing and life in general. Strap yourselves in, guys. I give you Duncan Savage. I'm here with Duncan Savage. Hi, Duncan. How's it going, Dev? <laughs> yeah, good, man. Um, where are we sitting? Why is there an echo here? We're uh, above my winery. Um, my uh, my neighbour used to drive me up the wall because he, it's a wooden floor, so he had a joinery business. Mm. And uh, if you speak to Tim Martin, he'll tell you all about it. Yeah. So, um, I've, you know, you're never happy when you see someone go belly up. You feel for their staff. So it's a cool space. I mean, it's it's in Salt River. It's awesome. So we're in Salt River, as you said. Yeah. Like we're, how, how far from the CBD of Cape Town are we? Like three kilometres, five kilometres? No, it's just down the road. Yeah. yeah. Super so cool. It's not exactly the most common spot for a, uh, a wine producer to be. How did you get here? I mean, when did you get into wine? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I suppose I'll start at the beginning. That's cool, eh? That's I mean, good. it was... Good um, to start, usually. Yeah, look, I mean, I wasn't born under a bloody grapevine or, you know, my mother didn't wake me up with her finger dipped in Romani Conti or whatever. One day we had very little wine background in our family. My mom just used to drink and enjoy a bit of wine. My first wine experiences back in the day, I mean, I grew up, my dad worked for Standard Bank, so we moved around a ton. Born in Pretoria, lived in Joburg, Kimberley. Um, I've got such fond memories of Kimberley, you know, my dad was part of the round table, you know, just all these lighties at the club, you know, cruising What's around. What's the round table, sorry? Oh, it's like a group of guys that gets together and very, they've got, um, uh, I don't quite know the whole dynamic behind round table, but they've got, I think, sort of clubhouses and what have you all around South Africa. I, don't, okay. I think it's kind of faded away a, little, a lot right. now. I don't know enough about it. I just yeah. remember round table. Yes, we had a jaw, eh? And then we moved to what was still, I mean, if I wasn't in the wine industry, I wouldn't be living in Cape Town, I'd be living in a hotel. Uh, we moved to Derbs, and um, yeah, I love that place, eh? You know, grew up there, played great sport there, started surfing there, um, life-saving, all that kind of stuff. It was just a great 
time in my life. And then, um, so from what ages were you in Durban? Um, I was. The, I mean, we moved there when I was seven and left when I was a teenager, basically. Okay. So I moved to Cape Town when I was going into standard eight here in, in high school, so okay. 13, 14, can't yeah. remember. Um, and it was, a, it was an exciting move, but you can imagine like when you're a lighty and you've kind of like cut your teeth and established yourself in a, in a place. Those were kind of almost my formative years at a school and then suddenly you move here. It's a, I mean, you're coming from Australia, so you, you have to kind of settle in and it's quite an interesting dynamic. And, um, and it was, I mean, it was awesome. Went to Ronnebosch Boys High, it was great. Um, I mean, my first wine experience was with my mates. We used to go to a place called Stokers, had these under 18 uh, uh, parties. And, uh, you know, obviously before then we needed a bit of lubrication. And someone had told me there was this bottle of Autumn Harvest Crackling that you can get in a good deal. Yeah. And we used to go and down the stuff on the rugby field in Standard 8 and it's get the quite sweet, if I recall. It was a shocker, but we had <laughs> polystyrene cups and you just downed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, it sounds terrible to say that, but that was essentially my first wine experience. Yeah. And then, um, you know, going home, and you know my mom and, and dad have always enjoyed wine my mom was always dropping a bit of wine and uh, and then you you start to taste a few of the glasses that she's had and after autumn harvest crackling there's only one way you can go so you know suddenly those wines started to look pretty damn amazing and um, started to get into it eh? and then um, finished my trick at, uh, at Rondebosch and, and went off to, uh, to, I had this, I mean it's actually crazy at the time, how my father let me get away with it, I have no idea. I had this master plan, it was so well thought out, um, of studying at UNISA and it was, I was, it was a BCom and the idea was to, you know, surf for the day, study at night and uh, didn't work. <laughs> the surfing in the day probably worked, the but then the studying the day at night. Worked. Was, no, I was surfing uh, like six was times a, a week, it was yeah, amazing. <laughs> and um, no, it was gr great years, you know, those late 90s. I matriculated in 95, so like those late 90s, um, you know, it was a, gr it was a great time. Um, but in that time, what was cool, I was working as wait doing waitering jobs, working in Camps Bay, super cool in tourist season, you know, you could, and that's where I learned how to sell, you know, you in the restaurants, you're earning, you know, tips, and you learn to sell. Mm. And um, and it was, it was amazing. So, um, Needless to say, the BCom crashed and burned. Uh, I wrote my final, my third year financial uh, management paper. It was all multiple choice. I got, I got a rewrite without opening a book. I was quite impressed. And uh, I shouldn't actually say that, but it's, um, it, was, it was all part of a journey, you know? And then, but through that time, got really started getting into wine and like went from how we all were as young students, you know, you're spending your cash going out and getting hammered with your mates. Um, hammered is probably a bit of a strong word, just going and having a good time um, with looking mates. For, looking for value for money. I, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> How many drafts you can get yeah, the, for, the, for the money the two in your one deals and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and sort of went from that phase to actually spending cash on more wine, you know, and like by the time I was, I was 21, you know, I had like 200 bottles of wine, Canorncorp was the holy grail. So what drove that though? I mean, was, that a, was, there, was there a group of you doing that or were you um, by no, yourself I just, or were you was, sharing it? It was just through you know, it all started with those humble autumn harvest days and then drinking wine with my mom, you know, it yeah, just right. became, you know, something that I really started to enjoy. Yeah. And, um, and then, uh, yeah, so then I, I kind of, in, after a couple of years, I, I flew over to the UK, thought I'd, you know, we had this grand plan, we were gonna go and work for six months and then go and surf for three months. Mm -hmm. um, I lasted a month in the UK and thought, you know, I can go home and I can surf every day and I can live in South Africa. <laughs> yeah. And it was amazing, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I got back on a plane and came back here and I said to my dad, I said, you know, I thought about it while I was overseas. This wine thing is amazing. Um, I wanna try Elsenberg. And- I, What year is this? This is now 99. Okay. 
So um, my dad is a bloody legend. He's very conservative and, and straight down the line. He kind of like is, if it wasn't for him, I think I would have you know, been in trouble in my life. But um, he's, he's an amazing human being. And he, to his credit, he said, okay, my boy, you got one last shot at this. And he paid for me to go to Elsenburg. So in 2000, um, I enrolled. Um, it, was, uh, it was amazing. Um, it, it wasn't so amazing the first week. We were, it was quite cool. We, I got there. I think there were like three English jokes. I said to my dad, I'm, if I'm doing this, I'm doing it properly. I'm not going in as a day student. I'm staying in the course ace. That's the deal. And um, so we, we rocked up there and initiation started. And it had already been sort of watered down a little bit because there had been some big shit that went so down. So course is a, like a residence? So yeah, it's in the residence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, there had been some big shit that had gone down in, 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 in previous years. So they'd kind of like turned it down a little bit, but it was still behind the scenes. There were still quite a bit of things on the go. Yeah. And obviously the English jokes copped it uh, pretty badly. So I, was, I remember phoning my dad after the first week and I was like, Dad, I think I might have made a mistake, <laughs> my boy. <laughs> and then uh, I think I, I remember the, the phone call to him two weeks later. No, one week later. So after two weeks of being there, I remember phoning him. I was standing in my blue overalls, my gum boots, with a double brandy and coke in hand, and life couldn't have been better. <laughs> and from then on, it was three of the greatest years of my life. I met some some amazing people, um, you know, farmers from all walks of life. Um, it's amazing how you, you, we played rugby against so many of these Afrikaans schools and like resented these acts because they were so big and like ground us into the dirt, you know, we were, it was tough, eh? And then you go there and you meet these guys and, and um, working with these guys and studying with these guys, it was just, you meet people that you mates with for, you know, from like wheat farmers up country uh, to, I mean, one of the guys, my, my, my roommate for at a time, you know, he's, I think they've got 5,000 hectares under pivot irrigation along the, just close to Douglas, you know, I mean, yeah. it's farming on a different scale, you know, yeah. we think a few little hectares of vineyards is quite intense. Mm. These oaks, it's, it's real business, eh? Mm. But it was, it was great. And then I, I, I got, um, you know, you, while you're there, you, you have to make sure you get into um, uh, uh, the final year, the Celius. I was deemed a bit of a slaper. They called us, uh, they call us slapers or a bit of a nerd or whatever in the first six months because after I'd stuffed up my BCom, I had my nose in my books yeah. and I was determined I was going to get into that. Uh, firstly, not, you know, you would rate train if you didn't make the first six months, you got turfed anyway. Okay. So you had to kind of make sure you were, you were part of it. Um, so that was kind of the... So, so only like the, the honours students get into the cellar, is that... Yeah, you had to that, get yeah. the marks in that, which is, okay. you know, I, I think is maybe the system, I don't know what it's like today, but I think a lot of the time people who got good marks got into the cellar and they weren't really that keen on winemaking. A lot of my class, there's no real big names in, in my class in the industry. Um, you know, there's a few guys who, who are in the industry, but it's, um, you know, it's not like the years of Ibn Saudi and Audi and all those kind of guys. So, you, you know, we, we, uh, there needs to be an element of looking at, is there a, a passion there? And, and an aptitude might, as well. An aptitude for, yeah, right. for wine, yeah. So, so I think that um, that was maybe, uh, I think it's changed a lot with Lorraine. I think Bertus um, Fourie, when he was there, made a, made a, a huge effort. And Lorraine has been incredible. Um, so yeah, so things were good, and and, uh, and so I was like, now we eventually got to the, the the third year, and it was we had an absolute jaw. I mean, we lived in a house together, ten of us, Heisbachers. Um, you know, every like a year, I probably get arrested for saying this, but every year um, there was a cellar key that got sort of handed down from one class to the next. So. We thought we were quite bad. Mate, you can't get arrested for um, stealing billions of rands in this country. I think you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, well, what did they say? They said a while back that there were more surfers arrested during lockdown than have been arrested for state capture exactly. in the VBS yeah, scandal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
<laughs> no, look, you know, we had a, there was a key to the cellar, so we made sure we used to have wine in canisters, these 18-litre canisters. So we made sure there was a canister at every bri that was going down yeah. in house buckets. <laughs> and we thought we were quite bad, and then we heard the stories of barley swart in these oaks. They used to somewhat, you know, drive up to the cellar with 1,000-litre flow bins and just pump them full, which <laughs> was crazy. The old days there. But um, no, we had a jaw and it was good. And, and then I actually got offered a, a job at, um, well actually just to go back a step, so we had a, uh, every year they do the, the, the auction at Elsenburg and it was uh, like, so, you know, bring in the wines from the guys. Is it sort of like a charity like yeah, fundraiser? Fundraiser for yeah. us to go overseas. Basically. Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah. So, so every year the guys would go and see all the various farmers, get some wine, do the auction. So one night with, um, we, we, did a, we had a wine tasting group and um, there weren't very many of us, there was three of us in fact. And uh, not a lot of Oaks, Oaks wanted to drink brandy and coke and hit Stellenbosch. So, you know, we, uh, we had a group that we tasted with. It was myself, Rob Kramer, and a guy called Nick A. Fonsale. And we hatched a plan one night after drinking way too much. Rob's dad, old Joseph Kramer, was the winemaker at um, Aikendal for many years. Okay. Um, very quiet, sort of understated guy. And after a night of drinking way too much and barrel tastings at Aikendal and, and all of that kind of stuff, we hatched this plan. We were going to raise money living in a wine tank. I don't know why we thought about this, but we, it was around the time of the Waterfront Wine Festival. So I phoned, I phoned Jeremy and Posey Hazel. Um, they're super cool. I mean, they're amazing people and, and up for sports. Okay, who are yeah. they? I don't know them. Uh, they were at the time, they, they've been involved in, the, in events in the wine industry for years, and okay. they used to organize the, the Waterfront Wine Festival, which used okay. to be in the marquee, where the big wheel is now, okay. kind of outside Vaughan right. Johnson's wine so, shop. So that was uh, one of the, the, the key events of the wine? That was one of the big events of, okay. the, of the, wine, the wine calendar. Mm -hmm. And obviously at that time, we didn't know much about the wine industry, you know, we were just students. So that looked like the main event. So um, we persuaded the rest of the guys in the class that this was a good idea. And uh, I said, what's, what's there to lose? So I phoned um, Posey and Jeremy and I said, look, I want to put a wine tank at the Waterfront Wine Festival. What do you guys think? And they said, sounds like a great idea. So I phoned Don Miller, who was working for um, um, uh, Grotto at the time, a uh, tank manufacturer. And Gr Don's still in tanks. I actually need to get hold of it, okay. Um, and Don, Don was like quite an outgoing personality. And I phoned Don and I said, Don, we want to live in a wine tank at the Waterfront Wine Festival to raise cash to send students overseas. And Don was said, well, when do you want the tank? And I was like, oh, this is amazing, all falling into place. So Don delivered a 15-ton uh, pneumatic punch-down tank into uh, uh, the waterfront. Right. It was the coolest thing. Put down right next to Vaughan Johnson's wine shop. Yes. Um, we went about trying to get uh, um, uh, sponsors for us to, you know, so we could live in this thing and, and make some cash. So I had this idea, there was these Axe deodorant adverts on the radio and all of that, you know, these nerdy cars that suddenly they sprayed Axe on and they became like these amazing... That's a cheap packet, so yeah. yeah. You know? And so I contacted these guys and said, listen, don't you want to sponsor us to come and we'll come out the tank and emerge spraying Axe deodorant or whatever. And they thought it was a totally shit idea, so it never <laughs> ever happened. Um, so needless to say, we didn't get any sponsors except for Nando's who sponsored us food and they kind of thought we were, I don't know, maybe midgets or something and didn't eat much, but they would deliver like one burger a day. So we ended up roping ferrymen's in. Um, and we went about it and we lived in this wine tank, three of us, Rob Kramer, Nick A. Fonsale and myself for five days. And um, it was amazing. And, and it, we raised no money. Um, <laughs> We had the best jaw ever, but the one thing we did do is, I mean, like you and I spoke about earlier, it's all about relationships. We, we developed relationships in the industry. We had guys giving us so much booze. Mm. We had guys, girls, 
in the tank at night. It was, Oaks just wanted to come and have a jaw with us. Yeah, it yeah. was incredible. Yeah. And, um, and the, so, so that was a huge thing for me. And, and Rob now lives in Austria. Nick, I haven't spoken to Nick in years. I'm not sure what he's up to. But I mean, for me, getting to know people in the industry, you, you need that icebreaker. Everyone needs a break. And, and that wasn't necessarily a break, but it was an introduction to a lot of people that would have been very difficult to get to meet at the time. Yes. And uh, anyway, so, so Hermann Kishbaum was one of those guys, and he and Jacques, his assistant, they came and they used to pelt us with ice in the tank and make sure we always had lots to drink in that. And I took a, Hermann took a liking to me, and, and, um, and when we needed to get wines for the auction, I thought, well, after living in the tank, that was unsuccessful, we need to get wines now, I better go and see old Harriman. So I rocked up there, and, um, and uh, we were chatting about wines, and literally the, all the staff had gone home, and they were waiting for a truck to arrive that needed to be loaded for an export. And I literally arrived at the time, at the same time as the truck, basically. So Hammond was um, saying, well, look, we've got to now load a truck. And they needed to loose load. They couldn't pack on pallets. So the two of them, because Hammond was a, he loved a bit of hard work. You know, him and old Jacques Moulins. Jacques passed away years ago. What a legend. And um, so I said, no, well, I'm here. Let me help you guys. So we, the three of us loaded a container. And that was, ever since then, Hammond and I were like this. And, uh, and at the time, so I didn't know, I just had a great relationship with this old man at Baiten for Wachten and, and, and felt like I could phone him and ask him things and use him as a sounding board. And then we went, um, you know, we were all getting to the end of the year and we went through the auction. We didn't raise enough money, so we didn't go overseas. I think we were the only year that didn't go overseas. <laughs> we thought we were so out the box and the whole thing, you know, at least we tried. Just, just missed the target slightly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, it shows maybe we should have been more business focused than just, you know, it was all about marketing and getting our names out there and doing that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. All, the, all the fun stuff. All the fun stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, so I got, a, I got a job through, Lofty helped me with, um, with uh, I was actually going to be the assistant winemaker at Nelson's Creek in Paul. So Lofty is? Uh, Lofty Ellis is the, was the lecturer at the time. He okay. was my lecturer in, in the final year, and Lofty's an absolute legend in the industry. Mm. Um, I mean, I still, a lot of us use him all the time now to look at our wines under a microscope. I mean, to me, it just all looks the same. He somehow seems to be able to figure out what's pediococcus and what's unococcus and all these kinds of things. Not that you get those sort of things in the... No, 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 unococcus, obviously, because you want uh, a little bit of malolactic to happen, but uh, the other one, definitely not. But, um, you know, Lofty, I think he's been great because obviously, you know, everyone says, oh, we don't filter and all of that kind of stuff, but, you know, we've also got to run a business and you can't afford for a wine to go belly up in a container somewhere in the market. So if Lofty says filter, to, to, we filter. To be, to be artistic, you have to be commercially viable. Yeah. And it's not, yeah. Well, most, most people do. Exactly. So, so Lofty um, helped me with this little um, job uh, at uh, um, Nelson's Creek, and I met up with old Alan Nelson, the owner. Hell of a nice family. Where's um, Nelson's Creek? Right? So it's, it's, it's on the, the Achterpol Road on the way to Wellington. Okay. Um, so I was quite lucky because, you know, Lofty, I remember the words he still said to me. I said, Lofty, do we go overseas and work harvests, or if we get a job, do we take a job? He said, Duncan, if you get a job, you take a job. So I was like, okay, cool, that's great. You know, even as, as attractive as working harvest sound, I was already, I'd finished now, it was 2002, I was finishing my, my year at Elsenburg. Um, I'd already stuffed up a BCom. I didn't really have time to now go and, you know, yeah, as yeah, much yeah. as I wanted the experience, I couldn't just bugger off and go and, you so know, have you, a job. So were you then sort of two, three years older than most of the other guys? At, yeah, uh, yeah, a little bit older of, than, yeah. oh, there's a mixed bag. I mean, okay. one, one of the guys in my class who, who's done very well is Vainand Latachan, he, but he came back he had studied before and then he came back. I don't know, Vaynant did the whole course with me. What am I saying? Yeah, yeah, he just wasn't uh, um, in the, in the course ace. Vaynant's 10 okay. years older than me. He was already married and, okay. and he, he was an outside student. Um, but we became good mates. 
But, but then uh, I got contacted. Uh, Herman phoned me and said, Duncan, send your CV to Cape Point Vineyards. They're looking for a winemaker. So I sent my CV in. And um, of course, the lady doing the screening said, <laughs> sorry, you don't have enough experience. So that, I thought, OK, well, nothing's going to come of that. And then I, I happened to get a call from uh, the owner, Sabron van der Spey, um, like a month or two later, and he said, uh, I want to come and see you. So I was like, oh, okay. This is 03, 04? This is now 2002, while I was in Helsingborg. Okay. Hadn't even written my final exams yet. This yeah. was my final year. The next thing, this big silver Mercedes rolls into the car park at, um, at Elsenburg and Sabron came to see me and said, listen, do you want to come and work at Cape Point Vineyards? And I was like, oh, for sure. You know, Cape Point had just come onto the scene. Emmanuel Bollinger had been the winemaker there for the first two years. Two vintages had been made, 2000 and 2001, and the wines were super well received in the, in the trade. You can imagine Sauvignon at that time was like the holy grail, you know, everyone wanted to make a great Sauvignon, yeah, it was yeah. just the thing. So as you come out of, you know, sitting in Elsenburg, you've been at an institution that's like kind of in a way, the focus has changed I think a lot now, but it taught you to be a winemaker. Yeah. And we left there as the mindset of a winemaker, you do it in the cellar, you know, that was the, the I think one of the big mistakes. But I just saw that as, you know, in Sauvignon, that was a winemaker's wine to a certain extent. Terroir played a huge role, but you know, all the reductive working and the yeast and all that, it seemed like quite sexy at the time and attractive. Mm. And, um, and you could have a real impact as well. Yeah, like you, you could. could, you yeah. could like, uh, that seemed like you the use thing that needed to be, be yeah. done, you know. Andre von Rensberg was dominating the, 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 the industry at that stage and winning everything. And that was like the, you know, he was like making these amazing wines. And, um, and yeah, so when that opened up, I, I just said, this is too good to be true. So I phoned Alan Nelson and I, I, I went to go and see him and, and just said, look, I've got this huge opportunity. It's going to be a head winemaker role coming straight out of Elsenburg. And he said, no, he completely underst understands. And I took the, took the opportunity and I, I left, I wrote my final exams and two days later started at Cape Point Vineyards. And um, it was a baptism of fire. I mean, but that terroir and that place is just incredible. So we, well, maybe just uh, explain where it is and why it's so incredible. Yeah, so a, a property, southeast-facing property in Nurtuk, and uh, Nurtuk's right at the base of the peninsula. For those of you who don't know Cape Town, I mean, it's, it's literally, it's on the ocean. And like, the, there were two, two things, you know, I thought this is an amazing opportunity at a high-profile place, a new but fairly high-profile place, considering, you know, the, 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 the time of, well, how many wines had actually been produced. Um, and my other biggest fear was that as a surfer, I was going to get a job in a place like Tulbach or something. Yes, so right. yeah, to yeah. be right by the sea, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah, there's yeah. golden yeah. pathways yeah, yeah, opened yeah. up for me. <laughs> and um, All the boxes are being filled. <laughs> exactly. Well. Yeah. It was just too good to be true. And I rolled off there and started, and I was like, okay, well, get into the cellar, and what now? You know, so there was a few good wines in bottle, fortunately. And I mean, you, I got to work with Emmanuel stuff, and, and he made some lovely wines. And... Um, and then, uh, yeah, just, I mean, God, so what was the brief when you, when you started? What was the, uh, in terms of what your role encompassed? And I was, was that, the winemaker. What, what was the aim of, you know, was it, was it awards and platter five stars was the game or what was the... We needed, to, we needed to build a brand, so we needed okay. to get awards. Yeah. And I was basically told to sink or swim. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, so we, we, we obviously, you know, we needed to build a brand. It was a new brand. We needed to get it out there. So I was quite lucky in that um, uh, Sabrant had, had had a relationship with, um, had a good, decent relationship with Andre Ferensberg. So Andre had like eyes, like quite scared of Andre. Well, we had met him when we lived in the tank. So we already, I'd already broken the ice with Andre. And everyone was like, sure, this guy, you know, do you, how yeah. do you like, sort of broach him and that kind of thing. And, uh, and, if, and if your own interaction from someone is they're living in a wine tank, 
perhaps they're not taking you too super seriously. Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps I'm not. I'm just just, just hypothesizing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 definitely. But we 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 had a so Sabrand organized for me to go and um, uh, work before we started crushing grapes at Cape Point. Go and um, work a week at Fergelechen. Uh, so I rock up there. I had this what I deem biscuit beige opal cadet which my family all called Vomit Brown. And yes. uh, none of the doors worked, so you had to get access to this thing because it had been broken into so many times. And yes. the student car, I didn't have cash to fix this thing, so I had to get in and out through my boot. So here I rock up at Fergelech in this rickety biscuit brown or Vomit Brown Opal Cadet, get out of my boot. Here's Andre from Rensburg at the cellar receiving me. And I thought this week is going to be a shit show. <laughs> and um, it was also just the most amazing week. Andre was. He took me under his wing, he showed me everything, he was so good to me. We swore like troopers in that place. Um, it was brilliant. It was a great sort of another nice sort of entry into things. You know, st they had started processing, get a feel for it. You know, the, only, the extent of the processing I'd done was as a student at Elspeth. That's it. Yeah. You know, and so going into Cape Point, I felt like I'd kind of like at least handled some grapes done a few SO2 editions, you know. So I mean, it was very much textbook driven in the beginning, trying to figure the whole thing out. Yes. And then... But, then, it, but it doesn't seem like you were um, super well prepared in terms of what, what, what you needed to do, in terms of, you had the sort of the basic building blocks and skeleton yeah. of, but there was no real meat on the bone, so to speak. Yeah, Would look, that I mean... a fair statement or...? Yes, for sure. Yeah. I, I think that, um, look, I, I kind of knew, I'd, I went to Elsenburg because I was crazy about wine. So I'd read all the books I could read yep. <laughs> prior to that. Um, you know, so I was super passionate, had an idea of where I wanted to go, the, the wines I liked, what I wanted to try and achieve. And, um, but now when you suddenly thrust into it, it's easy to think about it, but to actually go and physically do it, and then you've got to see that stuff into bottle and into the market, it's a bloody daunting task. Yeah. And um, anyway, so, so that, that first week was, was obviously, you know, helped. Um, fantastic grapes to, to, you know, which makes, makes a big difference. It almost made it more daunting because you don't want to stuff it up, you know. Um, so did that have a, I mean, you're talking about Elsenburg being more cellar focused rather than vineyard focused. And Honor van Rensburg has a, has, a, has a reputation of being vineyard focused also. Mm. Was that something that surprised you or that you, that was evident then? Or was that something that came later for you? The vineyard thing. So, so that's the, so what happened was in 2003, I did the first vintage um, uh, on my own, we had a, a, a viticulturist um, there at the farm. As I say, I was the winemaker. And then just after harvest in 2003, along comes this woman, um, never met her before, quite sort of flamboyant and, and in, her, in her own way. And it turns out to be Rosa Kriya. Yes. And um, you, share, you, share, you get the same barber, I think, is you? got the exact same haircut. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I checked out Rosa coming into this setup and I was like, I had no idea who she was. Mm. Um, she'd obviously done some work at Iona and, and, and she was, an, I mean, a great personality and, and a fantastic human being, you know, and she is. And um, so we clicked and, and, um, and that was, I would say, probably the biggest influence on my career to date. All right. In that, no, well, one of the biggest influences, yeah. I should say. There's, there's a couple that, are, that, are, that have to be mentioned. And Rosa... Rosa taught me what it is to farm and, and how much of a difference we could make viticulturally in what we were doing in the cellar. And Rosa didn't stay at Cape Point long, she was there for a year, um, but in that year, spending time with her, getting to understand, firstly, 
women have more compassion than men, so the way they deal with the staff on the farm. You know, I'd come out of it, um, you know, Elsenberg, I don't know, you, you, you don't really deal with staff. Suddenly you thrust into this thing, you're dealing with cellar staff, you're working with the guys in the vineyards. If you don't, and you're young, you know, I was like wet behind the ears, walking in there. Yeah. You've got a tractor driver who's been driving a tractor for 20 years, or, you know, whether it's just on, you know, he hadn't just been working on Cape Point, he'd worked on other properties as well. Now this young guy's coming and telling him what to do, and you suddenly, you think, well, hang on a sec, this, yeah. it puts things in perspective. And Ruissa was the way she dealt with the staff, um, her management skills, her level of organization was incredible. And I realized there's a whole nother level to this game. Mm. And uh, when she left in, in, um, in, at the end of, in early 2004, I, um, I said to, I think it was early or mid 2004, I said to Sabrant, I said, I want to do the vineyards too. So we didn't employ anyone, so I took over vineyards and, um, and winery, and, and that, was, that was it basically for, for the next, I was there for 14 years. Wow. And um, we had an amazing, amazing time, but I, I still think that, that that first year with Rosa, had I not had that year, I, you, you know, would you follow, would you have taken, the, would the route have been the same? Like it's like I often think, had I, had I stayed in the tell, like there, was a, there wasn't a boarding house at the school that time. If there had been a boarding house and I had stayed there and finished my trick there, how would my life have been different? You know, mm. and you never, it's no regrets or anything. I mean, I think I've got an amazing life now. But um, it's amazing when you think like what it could have, what would have and could have been. Yeah. So that time with Rosa was, was, was incredible. And then after that, just learning and figuring things out and farming and, and yeah, we had, we did such cool things, you know, how to, I, I was lucky in 2004, and that was another thing Rissa organized for me, he was a bloody difficult bugger, but I worked with Didier Dagano for a month. And, um, and uh, Didier, you know, we, we tasted quite extensively and looked at a couple of different, you know, just the way they were doing things, the way they were farming, all that kind of stuff. And look, Didier, I mean, he wasn't all that different and, you know, Didier was a marketing phenomenon. He, he talked the talk. Um, you know, it was just, it was great to see how he performed. There was, you know, there would be groups of people coming to visit the winery. The one day all these Swedish politicians arrived in a bus and he said to me, Duncan, just wait here. And I was like, I don't speak French. <laughs> what am I going to do here? He says, just wait here and just receive them. So I'm like, morning guys. You know, they go, <laughs> bonjour, bonjour. Everyone's like, I'm like, okay, well, what now? Fortunately, they're Swedish, so most of them can speak English fine. Yeah, so yeah, we had like yeah. a chat there. <laughs> So Didier has now disappeared. 20 minutes go by, no Didier. Next thing you know, everyone in France is driving around with these closed vans, like what you normally see in the vineyards. And um, next thing you hear this engine. Didier's got an open bucky, but this souped up big tire like vehicle. Next thing around the corner comes Didier and then he like handbrake turns next to the bus. You know, <laughs> dust, dust everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> Didier emerges from the bucky. I promise you, those guys must have spent, I don't know how many thousands of euros were spent that day. Yep. And you realize the value of the story and the marketing behind the, the whole thing. But, but, but he backed it up by being a perfectionist. Hey? I mean, that yeah, the winery, wines aren't bad either, or they weren't yeah, bad. No, no, yeah. The winery and the vineyards were immaculate. You know, just looking at the way he maintained his tractors, his spray equipment, it was incredible. Um, and, and I brought a lot of that home thinking, okay, cool, pyrazine is dead. Why are we making wines that are green when we can make wines that are mineral and lean like what these guys are doing? So that brought me to the 2005 vintage. We went and stripped leaves like crazy, opened up the canopies, got as much light onto the bunches as we could. 
Um, you know, it was just the height of the pyrazine craze, wasn't it? The height I mean, of the pyrazine yeah. craze. And we made the 2005 vintage at Cape Point, which I still believe is the best vintage we made there. And okay. there were some very good vintages, but the 05 stood out for me because it was balls to the wall stuff. We just threw caution to the wind and we did stuff. Gut feel. Isla was always going to be a, a, a straight Sauvignon. We gut feel they just blended some Semillon into it and that was the one. And guys like, I mean, I've drunk so many of those bottles with Christian, you know, he's been very kind enough to share the ones he bought because I don't have any more. Um, well, Christian loved that wine and, and, uh, and he's, I've drunk a couple with him. And funny enough, actually recently, Derek uh, Kilpin, he also a bloody legend, Derek, um, they bought an old cellar and he said to me, you'll, not, you'll have not, not believe what we found in this old winery, some Isla 05. Says, he says, is it any good? I said, well, how many no, bottles? No, mate, I'll, it's shit out. They'll take it off your hands very cheap if you like. You know. I said to him, he, he had six bottles. I said, geez, Derek, I said, that wine's one of the greatest white blends I think's ever come out of this country. And I'm not saying it because I had anything to do with it. I just very genuinely think that wine is really good. I had to be honest with him. And um, needless see, to say... I have learned from your mentors. <laughs> needless humble. to say, he, um, he sent, in the, like a few days later, he arrived in a courier box, two bottles of Isla 2005. And I still have one of them. So it's, uh, it's actually, it's, I mean, that wine, there's not much of it around. So yeah, that was, that was like cool. But, but what was weird is the wine did, the Arlo 5 did super well at the trophy show, um, but some of the other wines, they were, they were lean, they weren't green, but they had, still had palate weight, they had structure, they had intensity, they had tannin. Um, you know, more exposed to the sun, thicker skins, it was a different dynamic. Yes, and they were more powerful. They weren't well received. Yeah, right. 2006, if you look at 2006, we went back to green. We had to play the game, we were building a brand, yeah, we had to right. so do all of those things. In, you dipped your toe into that sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you, and it got, pushed back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that was the whole thing and it evolved over the years and, and it, was a, it was a great school. And, but it, you know, as is the industry, you become, it's so emotional, you want to have your own brand. You want to, I mean, everyone wants to make their own wine. Yeah. It's just like, it is what it is. So just talking about Cape Point a, a little bit more, I mean, you, you said you left in what, 2018 was the last? 20, I, I left there in 2016. 2016. I was, um, so 2016 okay. was the last vintage I made, 2017 I still consulted. Yeah, okay. Was your major market when you went into Cape Point South Africa or was it an export brand and maybe how much were you making at that point versus what ended up Cape Point looked like at 16 when you, when you left? What were the major changes in the, in the structure of the business and, and the size of it, and so to speak? Yeah, look, Cape Point... Because it, it didn't change direction in sort of stylistic. I mean, it didn't all of a sudden go to making Grenache and Syrah. I mean, it stayed no. with the Sauvignon, Semillon yeah. sort of... Look, that aspect. property was planted to Sauvignon and Semillon, essentially. So you need, you know, I couldn't... At the time, it was what was working. It, it made sense, you know, windy sites, Sauvignon's an upright grower. It just, you know, it, it made sense in that environment. You know, today, I think some of those vineyards you know, with some of the Rhone varieties planted there could be insanely good. But uh, it's, it is what it is, you know, we had to work with what was there and we built on it and it, it was right for the time. So yeah, so look, I mean, change in business, I mean, it was always small volumes, mostly local market. There was a fair chunk of exports, but I mean, mostly local market. And then um, the business evolved to doing some negos as well, which became quite big in the, in the export side of things. So, so yeah, I mean, it was just a growth over the years and, and, and um, but all the, the production of Cape Point Vineyards essentially focused on that specific property, yeah. which is, I, you know, I honestly believe, probably one of the top three terroirs in South Africa, if not a greater, 
I mean, I suppose saying Africa doesn't really make sense because the rest of America yeah, doesn't really grow grapes. Yeah. You know, it's difficult. You can't say one of the best terroirs in the world because they're all so different. But in South African context, really, really good. That's right up there. Yeah, okay. so, yeah, so in 2016, you know, I had this, I mean, I'd already started making some of my own wines while I was at Cape Point, you know, which was... Um, was it 14 the first vintage? Or no, was it? so first Savage Red was 2011 and 11, first White yeah, right. was 12. Um, you know, we'd played around and, and I'd been wanting to do it for years. And, um, you know, it was... Uh, you, you just you need the confidence to go out and do it and and also the cash because you know let's be honest and also the permission yeah so I was very lucky in that sense that I was able to start uh, which was great and um, and that was another big thing that helped me launch and and get myself into the game because if you leave a job and you have to start out from nothing it's bloody difficult you know if you've got to go through a couple of vintages without being in the game it's quite tough and not only financially but from a brand point of view you know this industry it forgets about people quite quickly. I mean, you know, you're two years out the game. It's, um, and, and I'd now come out of Cape Point. It's great terroir. You know, you're working with good grapes. So now can you do this with now other people's vineyards as well? So I didn't have the luxury when I left. My, the one thing that was important for me was that I wanted the business to, be, to stay small. And I didn't want to have any investors in the business. I wanted no. I didn't want to take money from anyone. You know, my dad helped me out obviously when I, when we got going and things yeah. like that. We learned a bit of cash from the banks and, and and as one does. But we we wanted to start small and build it up. So yes. not owning any land. I didn't have the cash to go out and buy land. I was buying grapes already at that stage, making the small volumes of Savage Red and White. Mm-hmm. We still said the only thing we're ever going to do is make savage red and white and now we make eight freaking wines but um, you know it's all kind of grown organically over the years and um, and it was cool so so basically um, you know as, as I said earlier we finished up in 16 had some wines in the game already you know but I was only making I, I think at the time I must have had about 12,000 bottles 14,000 bottles I can't remember um, and we needed to grow that because you know to be a sustainable business you've got to be I don't know, at the time, oh, John Loebscher had said to me, you need to be around about 30,000 bottles. So I just had this number in my mind of 30,000 bottles and that's what we needed to do. And off we ran and, and, um, and I, I needed cellar space, I needed to you know, crush somewhere and, and uh, phone. And then I, I can't remember how I ended up getting chatting to, to Ian Nordia, but I'd spoken to Francois Hasbrook. And Francois and Ian were crushing together at a place called Clipton. And, um, and uh, Ian was, 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 you know, he was fantastic. He allowed me to go and crush there with them, which was great. And it was super cool, you know, crushing in a, in a facility with mates is, um, it's actually quite, it's like, a, you, there's so much banter, you drink way too much beer, we bride a lot. Um, you know, it's, it's really good. And you get to also learn from one another and, and, and all that kind of yep. stuff, which was super cool. And um, a bit of different perspective on what you're doing and what they're doing. And, yeah, 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 totally. But this is now 2017 vintage. You know, I still look today. I mean, we're sitting here now. It's 2020. And I think it's like just the other day. You know, and if I think how much our business has changed in, in that short space of time, you know, I, I, it's actually crazy. Because that year, 2017, while, we're, while I set everything up and clipped them, here in late January, I get a phone call from Tim Martin saying, um, I've got no cash. I've got like nothing going on. Uh, I know I've got a place for my wines for 2017, mm-hmm. and now I'm trying to figure out, okay, cool, well, what am I gonna do in the future? I would love to. I'd already seen Tim, I'd told him something like in the city was an obvious choice for me because it was the safest investment. I buy a property in the city, it's low risk, 
Um, you know, it's not the investment of a farm in terms of fixing up and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So Tim knew like that I'd shown a lot of interest in his facility. Phones me in January 2017 and he said he's not that keen on the industry anymore. They phoned me, uh, I mean, just a, a, a phone call out of the blue. I mean, I, I, if you had told me that someone was going to phone me, that Tim was going to phone me and say that he wanted to get out of the game, I would have, I mean, I would have never believed it for a second. He said to me he wanted to get out of the game. Do I want to buy his winery? He knows I like the place. I was like, for sure. I'll come and see you, put the phone down. Holy shit, where am I gonna get money from? So, phoned my dad, said, Dad, listen, you know, this is an opportunity, we need to have a look at this. Mm. I'd in, 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 in subsequently told Tim, you know, think about what you want. I had no idea what sort of price he was gonna come out with. Phoned my dad, spoke to the banks, sort of tried to figure things out a little bit. Got chatting to Tim, we agreed on a price, um, and then I had to come up with the cash. And uh, managed to do it, and I have to say, it was, probably one of the other big opportunities in my time. I think I got a great deal from Tim. The one thing Tim did is he built an amazing setup. Yeah. Very well thought out guy. Tim does um, things properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But he also learned um, about wine in Burgundy, yeah. where those guys don't have to travel yeah. to sell their wine, you know, yeah. more or less. You know, no, like exactly. It's, it's a very different um, yeah, yeah. Uh, perspective on the industry. Yeah, yeah. So, so look, I mean, yeah. that, that's, that was, for him, it, was, it became a negative because it was just, you know, looking at having to sell wines in that way. For some of us, it's, it's, the, it's part of the game. You Kiss know, babies you, and you, take you photos, to, opportunities. And, yeah, yeah, you got to just yeah. do it. Talk to idiots like me. <laughs> No, but you know the thing is, is that with the whole with with that opportunity, you know, like with Tim, um, it was it was. I mean, I I still think I, I, I it was just meant to be. It was just incredible. I mean, a fantastic opportunity. We've subsequently, I mean, we made a few changes because Tim was doing quite small volumes. We needed to grow, you know, to do close to 80 tons in here. We had to change the the building a little bit. You know, we needed presses. We had to get things in. So we've slowly but surely built those things up over the years. But I mean, you buy a press and then you buy concrete egg and you buy a bit of this and more barrels and what have you and um, it's all been kind of like slowly built up as we've as we've gone along but uh, you know I say as we've gone along it's just a relatively short space of time and we've um, you know we've just been super lucky and that people have actually wanted to drink bottles of wine that say savage on them which has been quite cool no very cool yeah and so it was always going to be like savage there's no uh, like can you believe it eh? with a surname like savage at the time I was going to call the wines Alexander Hill my yeah. second name is Alexander, and thank God I didn't do that because that would have been a rookie mistake. So, the, you know, the, when, we, when we went about... We, Especially well, if there's no hill, you know? Like. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no. These, uh, these things, um, it's amazing how you at the time think that that's the way to go. Yeah. And then, like, you know, another very influential person in my, in my career has been a guy by the name of Anthony Lane, who a lot of people in the wine industry know all too well. And um, so it's sort of, I mean, I've kind of now spoken about Tim and the winery and kind of, got, I need to almost go back a bit, you know, when we started the whole Savage thing is, as I said, we, we came to the realization that we've got a good name, wanted to only make two wines and we needed a label that was strong. And I went to Anthony and, and I just, he and I just clicked from the get go, such a passionate individual. Um, you know, we, I'd go for a half an hour meeting. So and how does he fit in? Where is, I mean, I don't know. So Anthony Lane is a label designer, Anthony Lane Designs. Okay. Um, he's not, he's spending his, most of his time now in Greece and not South Africa. Okay. And um, if you can do that, then why not? 
Um, he, he's just a super passionate guy and uh, he played a huge role like with, with when I, I went to him and I had kind of ideas of what I wanted to do and he helped me get them onto a label. Yeah. And then um, you know when we came about coming out with some of the other wines like Follow the Line and all of that, I mean Follow the Line I knew what I wanted, I had a picture of a telephone pole. I, there was a cool story there. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I knew that I wanted to call it something along the lines of following a line or whatever. Mm. And I literally, I popped in, saw Anthony. We sat there for what was supposed to be half an hour for two hours, and we talked crap for most of the two hours. And in ten minutes, we basically just nailed it's going to be follow the line. He did a quick sketch, which was exactly the label. He just fine-tuned it for the print, yes. and that was it. You know, it was the quickest and easiest label we've ever designed. Mm. And. Um, and kind of the rest of them all kind of just grew organically from there. The girl next door came along, Thief in the Night in Time, um, uh, you know, Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? It's probably, I mean, this is far away. It was one of the least original names, I suppose you could say. But, you know, all of them are relevant to, to like just cool <laughs> stories about cool vineyards and, and, and kind of like a journey to getting to those, those wines into bottle, which was all part of it. So, yeah. you know, he played a, like, I think that's the, the, the interesting thing about the, the wine industry is along the way, the people you meet and the and the, the people that influence your your career, your style, your your everything. I mean, you know, a, another story if I can if I can tell it is, um, you know, when when I was at Cape Point, we had to um, we, had, we we like one of the things we wanted to do was we you know you farming South African we were farming South African grapes farmed by South Africans and South African terroir and putting it in a bottle we were bringing in from overseas and barrels bringing in from overseas and all that and I thought bugger this we need to get it was in 2006 2007 we needed to do something that was uniquely South African and we started this whole um, M4 project back then so I googled the well, I don't know. I think Google was there then, yeah. Uh, researched that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not really tech savvy. Yeah, yeah. Researched the whole that thing. It was 1986. <laughs> <laughs> we Googled the whole uh, um, uh, thing and, and I found the Potters Association. And, um, you, know, the, you know, I thought winemakers were pretty much dirty cuck, but all disorganized. But um, artists, oh, different <laughs> ballgame. So I got put in touch with a guy called Nico Liebenberg and we. Um, I went to Nika and I said, listen, Nika, you know, we want to we want to make pots South Af made by South Africans from South African clay. You know, this must be a great story. And, you know, we want to extract clay from the Isle of Vineyard. We want to age the wine in these pots and all that stuff. And uh, Nico just saw me coming from a mile away and just thought, here we go, let's make some cash. And he's such a lacquer oak. It was one of those typical sort of, you know, he opened his, um, his French door and it was like that old Volkswagen bus door opening and the smoke coming out type thing. Yeah, it was just yeah, like that, you know, yeah. Nico emerges from this, this cloud. And, um, but what a great guy. And he, he started making um, pots for us. And uh, he had a small kiln, like just bigger than a dishwasher. And uh, we made these earthenware jars, and I sort of naively said, "Well, look, we want interplay between the body of the pot and the and the juice. You know, we want it to reflect the pots and the terroir and all that." So Nick said, "No worries, earthenware. Boom, didn't fire it so high. I put them on the back of the bucky. Did about five laps around Stellenbosch because I thought I looked like a champ with those bloody things on the back of the bucky. <laughs> Drove back to Cape Point, got these." Um, uh, these wooden, uh, oh, well, wooden fruit packing bins as we all use our bottles, put up bottles in. And we filled them with straw, like it was quite biblical, you know, it was like these little babies in their manger. I mean, yeah. these pots in, this, in these um, straw filled uh, uh, bins. 
and we filled them with shenan juice. I was experimenting at the time with, with playing around with a few different things and we put some shenan juice in there and um, I, I went home, couldn't sleep that night. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting to see going back to the cellar. Mm. Went back to the cellar, I'd had these, like, these wooden bungs laid for me which were just like gloriously beautiful. And, so uh, much money were you spending here? Were you spending Cape Point's money? Yeah, yeah. Oh, right, look, that's, that's handy, isn't I, it? I went, to, <laughs> I went to Sabrant and I said, look, I want to do this um, Amphora project. And, and I said to him, I said, look, Sabrant, I don't know if it's going to work, but the pots are going to be bloody beautiful. Mm. And he said, well, if you don't try, you're not going to know. So to, to, I have to say, Sabrant was super open with, with allowing, you know, doing interesting things. And I think that's one of the main reasons the Cape Point wines had the success they had, because we were able to try stuff. So we went about this whole thing with the pots and, and as I say, the next morning I got to the cell, I went in at like half past four, we were harvesting and I also I couldn't sleep, I was just thinking about pots, pots, pots. And went in and here were these pots standing in their glory in these massive puddles of Chenin Blanc. So there'd been so much interplay between the body of the, of the pots and the, and the juice, it just went straight through. Mm. And um, so I went back to Nika and I said, listen, back to the drawing board. And he <laughs> said, line no, these bad boys. <laughs> yeah. So we started the lining story and um, we first did beeswax. Um, I went and saw a leather place here in town, bought this big block of beeswax and I remember we had some American clients um, that came to visit us that day and I thought let me take these oaks while we beeswax these pots, it'll be amazing, we'll sell tons of wine. And I took these oaks out there, we took these pots, put some melted, uh, first of all I get there, pots are 100 degrees in the kiln, Nico says, Duncan, I forgot the gloves, we're going to have a problem. So <laughs> we're there with towels, we've got the melted wax going in, we're kicking these pots around the dirt outside. Um, the Americans got bored halfway through and left, they had no wine. <laughs> the wines all from those pots all tasted like beeswax, we threw it all away, it was just a, it was a total stuff up. And then eventually he says, no, but let's try earthenware and we fire a bit more. So then we, sorry, not earthenware, stoneware. So we changed the, 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 the clays and, and, um, and we fired a little bit higher. Um, and then we ended up with a pot that actually worked. Leaked slightly, but worked. And then, you know, once Nico had made a bit of cash, he kind of told me what he could have told me three years before and said he knows a guy called Yogi De Beer, and Yogi has a big kiln. So I was like, thanks, Nico, okay. <laughs> but, um, so then I met old Yogi's, and, and Yogi's, um, we started the process, and those are the pots. If you go to Cape Point today, you'll see them all lined up. There's, mm -hmm. you know, anything between, you know, three, 300, 320 liters up to 650 liters, nine of them. The most beautiful pots you've ever seen. Yogi is a, he's a genius. But it's just like, as I say, the wine industry took us down this journey um, that we would never have done. I mean, why would I have ordered an Amphora for my house, you know? It's like to go down this journey and meet people like Nico and Yogs, and through Yogs we've met other people. A lot of guys have bought Yogs as pots. Yep. Um, you know, Yogs is such an interesting cat. He's an absolute legend, you know. You'll be, he'll make you a pot and then you'll phone him and say, Yogs, how's that second one coming along? He says, and I'm just in Botswana for two months, but don't worry, I'll finish it when I'm back. Yeah. So it's like that kind of dynamic but it's there's something about it that's cool the pots are different they're all thrown by hand it's as you said earlier it's an artisan it's an it's a, they're artisans and and they they make things they have a skill which these days is becoming you, you just look at so many guys with joinery or whatever yeah. and that's all just machine produced these days yeah. comes out of a mold made on mass you know it's so sad that we lose that dynamic but again, it's, it's, it's just that we've got Amphora downstairs, we work with a combination of all of those things. Mm -hmm. And it's more, it's just, you know, it's, they're as neutral as can be and it's a good reflection, I think, of, of the site and it's using something that's South African made by a South African, which I think is super yeah. important at this time in the, in the game especially. No, cool. So, yeah. Before we get too deep into the Savage story, which is um, pretty much the main reason why I talked to you, I had a health scare last year 
I was in hospital for a couple of weeks with my back and couldn't walk and all that sort of stuff. You also had a health scare a few years ago. I had a run-in with, um, with cancer. I had Hodgkin's disease, a lymphoma. Um, in 2004, 2003, 2004. Mm -hmm. So I had, um, but it was, you know, as, I, as it was the time, it was actually quite weird. We, you know, going to the doctor, um, you know, you have your checkups and all that kind of stuff and you sort of think, you know, you hear the word cancer and you shit yourself. Mm. Um, but actually what was quite cool is the, the so this is actually quite a cool story. Um, we had a, I went to see a whole lot of people. And I, at the time, I joined K Point. I'd been on my parents' medical aid the whole time. I had suddenly um, was changing to my own medical aid, and I was my admin skills were not so great. So there was a period where I was didn't have medical aid. And of course, when do I get diagnosed? In that bloody window. So, needless to say, the the medical aid guys did come through in the end. But at the time, we were we were going almost like for quotes, you know, what's this going to cost? You know, yes, I yes. want to get better, but, but what's it going to cost? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we went to um, uh, uh, the, the hospital at Constantia Bergen, and we felt very much like, oh, when I say we, I was obviously with my folks, you know, it was an emotional time, and um, you're sitting there and- Were you and, married at that point? Uh, yes, I just yeah. got married, uh, we got, no, I wasn't married, I was with Zania, got married in 2005. Okay, so, um, that's an important one to get right, by the way. Yes, I know, yeah. <laughs> No, so, so we, but, but I was with Zania at that time, and, and, um, and we, uh, um, yeah, so we went off to, to Constantinburg and, and it was very much like that financial transaction. This is what's going to happen, this is what it's going to cost you. Yeah. Um, sign here and um, make sure you know you can pay us type thing. And then Zani's dad um, said to me, go and see this guy at Tigerberg. Um, uh, and uh, I thought, oh, you know, do I really want to go do that? And then I thought, bugger it, let me go and see him and um, Dr. Peter Barnard. And we went there and, and I'd had uh, these scans done. I'd had a, like a CT scan or whatever it's called. And um, he like, looks at these and he says, you know, why did you spend all this money? We could have done it here, you know, in, in other scans much cheaper and, and, and they would have told you so much more. And, um, and uh, he sat there and he, he put these scans up to the screen and like he told me what was wrong and, and, and then he just started romancing about all these organs and showing me about all these things. And I sat there for 15 minutes and just listened to this guy, how passionate he was. And he, I mean, he's like, he's retiring this year. Yeah. Um, he, uh, and I just sat there, I left the room and I said, mom and dad, I don't care what queue I have to come and sit in this is my doctor. Mm -hmm. So I sat and had chemo at Tigerberg with oaks in irons and prison clothes next to me and yes. stuff. It was the most real experience ever. Mm. And, um, and then you get like, you have a, a procedure, bone marrow or whatever, and you get wheeled off down this tunnel, like it looks like you're going off to the slaughterhouse. Um, and then they like, get, you get there and the guy's like, very lucky today the professor's doing a bone marrow and then you've got like students standing there it was actually quite cool in a way you know so it was an amazing amazing experience and it's something i've actually thought i need to write to the like something like cape talk or something to say that mm. what how incredible i go back every year i can afford i've got my medical aid i can afford to go anywhere but i go back and i stand in that queue, i sit in that queue every year and i go and see dr barnard and for him it's it's you know he gets we talk about wine for like 15 minutes and he does a checkup for five you know it's like wine and, and he loves to travel so it's like there's a connection and, and it, you know we romance about that kind of stuff so it's great yeah. um, but you still go back there and, and, and the people are to this day the people that work there most of them are retiring now the, the ladies who worked in like the chemo rooms who work at the receptions they are, they remember 
Mr. Savage, how are you? And mm. welcome back. It's so good to see you again. Yes. It, and we dismiss these government institutions as being like, you know, you don't even want to go near there. And actually, there are so many people who are working so hard and making such a massive effort. So it's, it's a bit of a roundabout story, but we can, we can, I think we can separate the, the reasons the institutes, institutions are bad from the people who work in them. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. you can make that yeah, separation. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 yeah. for sure. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of heroes in those places that do things every day and COVID aside, I mean, we're all yes. tired of hearing about that stuff, but you know, that have do on a daily basis stuff, which is amazing. And they just, they're passionate about medicine. And I think that's, if you're in the wine industry, you're passionate about the wine industry. If you're not, in the, if you're not passionate about the wine industry, you're going to end up doing something else. It's just a question of time. Yeah. Um, so you have to be passionate. And I think, again, like meeting those kind of people, it, it, it wasn't necessarily meant to be, but just by chance going to see this guy, you end up with a whole new sort of perspective on things, which is great. And the perspective coming out of that was, did that change you? I mean, did that sort of put some things in perspective, like um, life-wise and work-wise, or was it yeah, look, I mean, sort it's, of on the, that track anyway? Yeah, look, I, I think the thing is you realize that, you know, you worry about it for a few days and then you think, well, you know, there's a lot more people worse off and, and we just carried on, you know. I worked through the whole thing and was mm. like normal. I, was, I, I had a great prognosis. I was a, I was a textbook case. So it was an easily handleable sort of scenario mm. and, it's, and things have been good ever since. But it does put okay. things a little bit in perspective. The, the thing that was, that was my biggest fear at the time was losing, I, I, through radiation, lost all saliva. I had no saliva. Mm. So the worst thing I ever did, I think one of the most difficult things I've had to do in my life was I try to eat a muffin. <laughs> Try eat a muffin and you've got no saliva. <laughs> yeah. No, listen, it was that was that was a big big worry because I, you know, without saliva you can't you know, taste is, is, a, yeah, is a problem. So it's still today the way I perceive tannins and that is different. I, hmm. you know, it's you don't um, um, you know I find I, tannins are more aggressive for me than, than what they may be for someone else. Okay. So um, it just depends. But you get used to it and you, you, you obviously figure the whole thing out. So yeah. yeah. No, cool. So, I didn't mean to digress too much, but no, I think no, no, it's no. an important part of uh, your story, so to speak. Yeah, look, I mean, yeah. it's, 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 it's everything What's you a significant do, part, maybe put it that way. Yeah, look, everything we do determines where we end up, I suppose, it's uh, in somewhere around. And it's amazing how, like, at the time, it feels like a terrible experience, or whether it's that, or something goes wrong, or, mm. you know, wine problem, or whatever, you know, you always think the world's going to end. And it doesn't end, you know, it carries on. And we all obsess yeah. about these small things. Well, we may end the world work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but we do, we, we, yeah. we sweat the small stuff. And everyone says, oh, we don't, we don't, you know, don't sweat the small stuff, but we all do. Yes. And it's, um, it is a good thing because it forces you to, to motivate yourself, to work harder, to do things better and try and all of that. But at the same time, you know, you also have to kind of like put things in perspective and say, well, you know, um, we'll still be here in 10 years time, hopefully, and well, nothing's gonna, we just, a, 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 it's all part of the whole system, really, at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, the older I get, the more I think that, like, wisdom and life experience is actually getting that balance right. Yeah. Between yeah. having the big picture in mind at all times, but actually yeah. making sure all the little shit's done correctly as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. And how to balance those out, because sometimes they are in opposition. Yeah. Sometimes you have to do one or the other, you can yeah. do both. Yeah. So, yeah, the more I, and the more I think about it is, hopefully the better choices I'm making. Yeah. <laughs> Not always the case, to be fair. <laughs> but you've got to make those wrong ones to well, no, actually no, exactly. get in the right you, direction. You, you never learn by making the right decision. You only no, learn by making the wrong no, no, ones. No, so, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it can decisions. be expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, cool. So when, you, uh, when, when, this, when the idea for, for Alexander Hill... Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
came in. That would have been a very bad mistake. So you said the, 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 the plan, the, the original plan, or the, uh, was one white, one red clerk. <laughs> Uh, was that a model that you'd seen work, or it was just sort of what you thought you were capable of, what you thought the market needed? What was the thinking behind that? Look, at the time, it was was um, it was all about you know looking at the market, and and already then, I mean, it's 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 very different now. There's so many wines out there, but I mean, yeah. already then, it was competitive. Selling wine wasn't easy. It's never been easy to sell wine, and um, I looked at it and thought, well, if I've got two wines, it's going to be. So Savage was a dream. I really wanted to have my own setup, as, as I said earlier, most people do. Um, but I knew having not, not having a business brain or, or a mind necessarily for cash flow and you know, accounting and all of that kind of, I got an E for accounting at school, I scraped through. Um, but, uh, is E a pass here? Of course it is, yeah. 30% is a pass here, isn't it? That's, uh, uh, good old that, South explains, that explains the finance department, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah, no, so anyway, so like I was just, at the time I thought, the only way this is going to work is if I can sell. And I just thought, if I've got two wines, I know I can sell it. Yes. And, um, and but most people drink either red or white. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I call them do. red and white. Yeah, so yeah. Just, there you go. <laughs> no, look, the, 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 the thing at the time was, I mean, you know, we had a good name, but we didn't come up with very imaginative names for Savage Red and Savage White. And um, it was also... It, it, remember, clear messaging, though. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so we, we kind of, we also wanted to be in a position where we'd worked with different vineyards with different farmers. You, ha you don't know anything about those vineyards apart from going there and thinking you know everything about it. That's the worst thing that can happen to a vineyard often is a winemaker. Yes. Because you get in there and you think you know everything you, make you know nothing. And, yeah, right. And, uh, and so that was why we started out making two, two wines that were Western Cape origin. Of our eight wines now, only one of them is Western Cape origin and that's the white. Um, everything else is terroir specific. But at the time we wanted to hedge our bets and say, okay, cool, we know what we want to work with. Are you saying WOs are terroir specific? Oh, oh, sorry, just that. Uh, WO is terroir specific, or are you talking about single vineyard wines? Well, terroir <laughs> Not terroir specific. Okay, yeah. one of origin is the wrong thing. But, yeah. you know, it, when you're talking about terroir, obviously you drill right down into a specific yeah, yeah, parcel yeah. on a property. No, the, I, the reason why I ask is I think it, the, you, the word gets used uh, as shorthand for not a massive blend. Yeah. And like, well, that's, a, that's also a, a yeah. big. So should I say more? Covers a lot of ground. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. more site-specific wines, focusing on specific yeah. vineyards or a property. So yeah. a single vineyard, I can't really say single vineyard because most of them aren't single vineyards. A lot yeah. of them are, but they 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 like like are oh, we there yet? Just two parcels right next to one another. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, follow the line is Sinsa and Syrah from the same property. Yes. Thief in the night. Yeah, three yeah. vineyards, but the same property. Yeah. Um, so look, all of that kind of grew organically. We we had gone off and found some Sinsa. Uh, which we blended into the, the, the Syrah from... from so a just go back, sorry, again. So the, the white and the red initially were what? So the white and the red, the white was Sauvignon Semiel, Cayman's mm -hmm. Cut. I was very lucky that um, Johan Rupert uh, allowed um, me to buy some grapes from his property called Cayman's Cut, yeah. uh, called Ultima in Cayman's Cut, which is, if you haven't been there, it's what an amazing property. It's mm. incredible. And uh, a little bit of Semiel from a, from a vineyard in Valisdor. And then the, the Savage Red started out with Syrah from Stelly's, where we where the wine is made from today exclusively. That yep. was the cornerstone of the wine, the farm called Langfervacht. 
um, in Kales at a fear. But we say Stellenbosch because it just sounds yeah, sexier. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, um, and then, uh, and then we, we, we blended in some Grenache, which is from the Pekingese Kloof, and then occasionally a little bit of Tariga. You know, it was a, like that, we, we sort of, everything was a Rhone red and a Bordeaux white. And I was like, ah, oh, come on, we can't call it, a, it's not a Bordeaux white. So we blended some Chenin in, mm-hmm. and we didn't want it to be called a, a Rhone red, so we blended some Tariga in, which, you know, was such a stupid th- thought at the time. But it was, you know, who really cares? We're not the Rhone and we're not Bordeaux, so it kind of felt relevant for me then. So what's happened is the Tariga became, are we there yet? The, the, the Sinso became follow the line. The Grenache and other components from that property became thief in the night. Um, the white, you know, the Shenan, we've, we've worked with different parcels of Shenan before we've settled into one that's now become never been asked to dance. But, you know, some of that Shenan finds its way into to the Savage White. So the Savage White is a wine which has kind of stuck to that, that you know, Kaimanschat Valierstorp, it's now a little bit of Shannon from Paul, and we've even got some Tiruk in there. So it's like a shotgun, a proper shotgun. It's like miles apart. But it works, and people love the wine, and it sells, you know, super quickly, and, and, it's, and it's great. So we don't want to mess with it. And we also don't have a, a, a plan, you know. Um, I, I mean, we have a plan, but if Not I want to have a, a specific site, you know, then the wine changes drastically. So it's, um, you know, that's the concern. Whereas, so is that more of a sort of like a savage style wine rather than a, a wine of terroir, would you think? Like that sort of represents probably more about what your, yeah. uh, what you bring to the party rather than what the vineyards bring. Yeah, a, I think it's more, you know, in terms of, so we've always had a policy of when we, when we blend the wines, I don't really blend much. So the Savage White, we've got the components that go in. The only thing we don't do is if we're not happy with the wine, we won't blend it in. Otherwise, it all goes in. So the percentages vary based on what we get from those parcels every year. Yeah. So blending, I, I mean, I, I, you know, it is definitely, a, I suppose, a, a winemaker's wine and that I've gone and selected those vineyards, but we try not to have too much influence on the way the blend is, you know. It's, we kind of want the sites to dictate it as much as possible, but obviously we also have to run a business. So if the wines aren't good enough, then we won't use them. I mean, this 2019 is a good example. Bird damage in two vineyards, we made two wines less, you know. The yeah. wines, are, they're in barrel downstairs, but um, we're not gonna use them. We're not gonna put them to bottle if we, you know, we're in a position now where the business is running and we want people to identify, obviously, the Savage brand with quality. So we don't wanna put something in bottle if it's not gonna be good enough and it detracts from the style, you know? So um, we want to keep a, a certain house style, if you if you can call it that. It's a terrible way of saying it, but it's, yeah. it is to a certain extent what we're doing. But yeah, so, so you know, the, the, the Syrah component that, that, that was the, 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 the base or the foundation of Savage Red is, is what the wine is today. And it's, you know, we I've, I've come to, to learn there's a lot of stuff that's said in the industry um, buzzwords, I mean, whole bunch fermentation. Guys, guys love to talk about schist and all those, just sounds sexy, you know. But, you know, for me, granite is, is the soil that works the best in this country. I absolutely love decomposed granite. There's quite a bit of it around. Um, Why do you think granite is the... It's nutrient poor, generally. I like the more weathered granites, so the sandier topsoils, clay base. Um, you know, you obviously get different forms. There's, there's, you know, there's a lot of granite profiles that are, have a, are a lot less weathered and have a lot of clay through the profile. You'll generally get a lot more vigor, make a different style. Um, I don't know. I just, I seem to, I, I think it just works. You know, there's, there's, there's a mineral element to those wines from the soils where, yeah. is it in my mind? Is it in the wines? I don't know. Mm. Um, but for me, it's there, and it just. You know, that, we're never going to lack for fruit in South Africa, so is, no. is that maybe what you're thinking in terms of lower vigor soils and create more of a, you know, a mineral or an acidic sort of um, profile yeah. maybe adds to what the climate doesn't, yeah. doesn't provide? Yeah, perhaps. look, I mean, 
I think low vigor, like when you the whole viticultural side of things is is quite challenging because you you never really know. Um, you, you have to get to know a, you have to get to know a site. You have to get to understand the soils, and that's why working with these farmers, you know, we, it's it's the most amazing thing. You work with oaks who've grown up with their their toes in that soil. They know their farms. They know. Yes what happens rain-wise, soil-wise, all these kind mm -hmm. of things. So it might not be for grapevines, maybe it's for wheat or whatever, yes. but they understand their terroir. And, and it's tapping into their knowledge to, better, to, to farm that vineyard the best way possible and make a wine that's a reflection of that property as opposed to trying to force it into a, like a you know, round peg, square hole sort of scenario in the cellar. You kind of want to guide it. So, you know, we've done what everyone says these days, oh, minimal intervention, all that kind of stuff. Everyone likes to talk about it, but, you know, we try and do that as much as possible. We'll stand back and allow the things. We pick early. You know, we don't, we, we, you, you know the drill. We can ripen things like crazy in this country. Uh, we've got the sun. We don't have acid. Um, we don't have freshness often. So we need to compensate for that. So that was the immediate choice for me. Sauvignon, I know has got acidity. I like acidity. I'd cut my teeth on the variety. It's not deemed as sexy, but I see it as an opportunity. You know, a lot of guys are on the anti-Sauvignon bandwagon. They must carry on. It's actually, to me, to be quite honest, it's, a, it's an opportunity. A lot of people drink Sauvignon. Um, on the red front, I wanted to work with varieties that are not pyrazine sensitive. So that's why we ended up with Shiraz, Grenache, Sinso. Um, you know, you, you, have a, you can pick a Sinso from... Why, sorry, just a, uh, why you don't want to work with varieties that are pyrazine sensitive? Is this because you need to, or is it no, a, you need to manipulate too much. Okay. So technically, you have to do that with Sauvignon. You know, we break a lot of leaves, we open canopies. I mean, the stuff we farm yep. in Kaiman's Hut is 30 centimeters. That entire bunch zone is stripped from both sides at Peaberry. I mean, it's it's completely exposed. Mm. But it, you you pick these beautiful, you know, golden bunches. It, it's mm. it's amazing. Um, but pyrazine on reds, I think physiological ripeness in South Africa is a challenge. Mm. And pyrazine on on reds, you need to have. Like, like if I was working with Cabernet, Cabernet is very site specific. You've got to have bloody good terroir in South Africa to, to make great cab. And I think that, that you know, um, varieties like Syros and, so and Grenache are to a certain extent a little more forgiving and possibly more suited to our yeah. environment. Um, you know, you can pick Syrah from 12 alcohol to 15 alcohol and make a lacquer wine. Yes. It depends on the site, obviously. Yeah. And the same applies to Grenache and Sinsa. Mm. You know, stylistically, I'm, you know, we've just gone for picking on the fresher side of the spectrum um, in order to add less. I mean, years like 2016, we added acid. I mean, if you didn't, then I think you, I don't know. But, um, you know, certain or maybe, times... Or maybe, um, you know, after three years of you'll be able to tell. Yeah, well, I mean, it's you, you, you know, there, there are times when you need to intervene because at the end of the day, you still have to run a business. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we intervene if we really need to, um, but otherwise we try and stand back as much as we can. I think, um, I think most people would say that. Yeah. Um, but their line of when they need to intervene, that's yeah. the subjective part yeah. uh, in terms of when you say you need to intervene might be much further down the line than other people. Yeah. And, that, and your line might be much closer than... Again, yeah. uh, the people who, who will you know only intervene at the very very yeah. end and only because their business yeah. is going to fail if yeah. they don't. So that's the. I mean, the actual statement is is very broad. Yeah. So so sixteen, you said you, you had to add a, add a bit of acid. Sixteen. I mean, obviously the the wines would have been quote unquote okay if you mm. didn't add acid. Mm. But obviously, I mean, I'm now I'm putting words in your mouth, which is not um, the greatest interviewing technique. <laughs> But, You're um, good with words, Dave. You yeah, can, yeah. Uh, but the point I'm getting at is, like, does it make the wine better or worse 
And that also is subjective because is it a better wine that I've added something to it? Like not better just necessarily in the glass when I'm not there, yeah. but you know, stylistically, uh, philo philosophically, is it a better wine or not? Is that, is that sort of what you're going through or is it, is it, am I looking too, too, too deep into it? Yeah, oh, look, I mean, I think there's always, you know, we, you, you, you learn, I kind of, you know, when you go to Elsenberg or, or when you read about wines, I mean, there was that old sort of thing, you know, the Aussies, you know, you guys were very, you know, 3.56 or 3.57 or whatever it was, that magic pH, you know, you've always got that in the back of your head, even though you try not to think about it. Mm. So when you've got an analysis and it says 4.2 pH, you kind of have to think a little bit more <laughs> carefully about that side of things. And that's something that Sinso quite likes to do. So, you know, we are weary of it and, and we try and watch it. We've done experiments with staving off mallow on certain batches. But it's very difficult to control, you know, we don't have, you know, our cooling downstairs and that is not as, you know, we don't have the fanciest of systems. So it's, we, at the end of the day, it's just, it's kind of winemaking with an, with an open mind, I suppose, yeah. as to, we have an idea or, or a style that we want to try and achieve. Langverwacht on those granites is never going to give us a big brooding style of Syrah, you know, you, yes. we, we're always going to get something that's a little bit lighter, more refined, white pepper, um, that's typical of the site. Um, if I look at that Darling uh, Sinsa, we've, we've done some experiments with like drawing off juice, for example. The color and the stuff we draw off juice is the same as the stuff we didn't draw off juice. Yeah. Well, just, I haven't, I haven't checked it analytically. I'm just yeah. visually looking at it. Yes. You know, is there more extract in that wine? I don't know, I haven't checked it. Yeah. But, but the Let's, site is the sorry. site, yeah. and, it, and, it, and it will always shine through, you know. So, so it's just a, a kind of being, you know, there's a certain character we get from that vineyard picking early. Maybe someone else prefers a character at, at a riper stage. We've just kind of found that's what works for us. Um, and we've approached it from the point of view of we need to intervene less if we do that. Mm. And I'm also in the business of, I always say to people, I'm in the business of selling wine. So if my follow the line is 15 alcohol, you're going to struggle through a bottle. Whereas at 12.8 or 13 on the label, you're going to be thirsty for another bottle after that. Yeah. I want to sell wine. And, um, and I want to sell wine to people who want to drink it and enjoy it and then drink something else. You know, it's, mm. um, and, at, and at our price points, we're selling wine to wine people generally. You know, I'm not selling yeah. wine necessarily, I mean our prices are quite conservative, everything's under 300 bucks except for two wines. Um, so we're not selling wine to your average Joe who pops into pick and pay and wants a bottle for 50 bucks. You know, you're buying, selling wine to someone who's going to think about it a little bit. Yeah. Maybe not for hours on end or romance about it, but he might just think about it for a few seconds when he has his nose in the glass for the first time. Yeah, and there has to be an element of value in terms of, yeah. you know, value for money. Mm. And, and look, struggling with ripeness versus structure is not a, a unique thing to South Africa. I mean, yeah. and there's different techniques around the yeah. world. I mean, there's parts of the world where they just add water. Yeah. Like, just get up to the, the flavor profile and add water to dilute it back and... It's crazy, yeah. You know, that's, you know, and you end up with a, a more wine to sell as well, you know? <laughs> water, chaplization, all that yeah, well, stuff. Yeah, exactly right. All the, the opposite, the opposite issue um, yeah. in the cooler areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So guys are quick not to say they do the things, but I mean, at the end yeah. of the day, it all comes back to you know, you can be, if you're a Burgundian producer that's made so much money of selling your vintages every year and you can afford not to, to release a vintage or do something, you know, then good luck to you. But, you know, at the end of the day, we also have to make business decisions and it plays a role. You know, we can have a, you have to have a, a, a philosophy and, and, and principles, um, you know, but at the same time, you also need to, you know, we've got staff, we, we have responsibilities, not just to ourselves. Mm. You know, you've got people who work for you and, and I mean, earn salaries and are dependent, whether they are directly or indirectly directly dependent, all the people that work in the vineyards, you know, the sites you work with, the extra 
leaf plucking actions or whatever. You know, people are making cash out of those things. So yep. it's um, you have to bear that stuff in mind. No, for sure. Yeah. So, what is it, you, you said? Uh, you said, "I'm oh, just going to make two wines." And then, as you said, that some didn't last that long. Uh, you sort of expanded out to other wines. Yeah. What? Why the change? I mean, did you see? Was it a personal sort of itch you needed to scratch, or was it a uh, like, well, no, there's there's room in the market for these wines, or was it a price point thing? What's the look? Did you have to get up to the thirty thousand bottles somehow? No. Look, the, the irony is, is that I said earlier, you know, doing um, two wines would mean an easier message in the market, so technically easier to sell, but. Selling smaller volumes of wine is easier to sell than bigger volumes of one wine. So kind of that's where, you know, that wasn't the decision at the time to making different wines in the range. The decision was that that Cinso was so damn good. Geez, we need it and we've got a great story. I mean, follow the line and all that, the label, everything. I just fell in love with it, the concept and the vineyard (coughs) straight away. So it was just meant to be. Um, that was also the same time that Girl Next Door came into the mix, and Girl Next Door is that little vineyard in, in the Stonehaven Estate, you know, planted as a, as a, as a, um, you know, for aesthetic purposes, you know. But like anything, you know, it's like that the usual thing: developers will do a development and call the roads Cabernet and Merlot and Petit Verdot and all of this because it sounds all sexy. Slap two hundred thousand bucks onto the, the the value of the plots, yeah. plant a few olives and a little bit of vineyards. I mean, the Cravens used to live in Melbeck Strat. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I live ironically enough. It was never planned. I live on the corner of Sauvignon and Semillon, and uh, just by chance. That's <laughs> But it's, um, you know, the thing was, these guys, they, they did this, and then they, you know, the, the, the estate guys suddenly realized, well, hang on a sec, it's one thing to plant a vineyard, but how the hell do you maintain this bloody yeah, thing? Yeah, what the fuck, yeah. <laughs> so so we, um, we, we made a bit of wine from the vineyard, and, and uh, it turned out beautifully, no matter, you know, in spite of the fact that the grapes looked so terrible. I mean, mildew and bird damage and everything, and it, this, you know, red-fruited, quite pure wine came out of grapes that looked that bad, and I thought, well, this is an opportunity. So we did the long-term deal with them. Um, it's been a good few years. <clears throat> the first one was made in 2014. I like to think the 14 and 15 I think are solid. There was no 16 made. Um, but I think that vineyard's really starting to show itself from 17. So 17 was a beautiful wine. 18 was, was a more muscular, almost slightly more savoury style. And the 19 we're about to release now is we're about to release it, so it's yeah, the well, best one we've must, ever made. It must be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that genuinely is a really nice wine, I have to say. But it's. Um, now the thing is, is that uh, the vineyard's coming into 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 place now. And what's interesting is we had to. It was a vineyard planted, you know, with no level care in the beginning. So you can imagine that just looked like a weed patch pruned by garden guys who had basically the closest they'd come to vines was pruning rose bushes. Yeah. So you know, this we, it took us five years. I pruned every single vine there myself every year. It's two thousand vines, um, and it's taken us a number of years. My father's actually brush cutting the vineyard as we speak right now, um, and then I go in and do the the the, the stomp snail, the the final prune, as you would say, and um, and it's it's just. You know, how, you, you can't, I mean, it's pruning. Everyone, most people listening to this will know what the, the deal is with pruning. But I mean, if you chop your arm off, it's not gonna grow back. Um, a vine will grow back, but you create so much damage and trauma to that plant. Mm. The same thing you would to your body, you know? Whereas if you get a little nick, you heal and everything's fine. So small cuts all the way and, and as little of them as you can possibly make. So it's been a long journey to try and get the pruning right on that vineyard. And, um, and hence the name Girl Next Door, because it was this unassuming, ugly little weed patch that's just blossomed into this beautiful thing over time. And the vineyard genuinely looks beautiful, but what we've had to do is it was planted on municipal water, so we've had to wean that vineyard off 
water. Mm. Um, you know, you could you could imagine. I mean, firstly, it was bloody expensive to give it water. Secondly, if I had given water, I would have been probably arrested because you know during the drought you just can't justify that kind of thing. So 17 was still fine, 18 the canopies were half the size, hence the wine being more savoury, a little bit more extracted, um, you know, in a tiny crop. Um, and then 19 came along, we, we I do a bit of contract work, so we lease quite a few of the vineyards. So the girl next door we lease, we lease the, the vineyards in Stellenbosch and we work with a guy called Francois Hanekom, who's been um, fantastic. So I've, on the viticultural side, I've got, um, do a lot of vineyard work with Francois and then I've got a, a consultant, um, Jaku Engelbrecht, who's quite a well-known guy in the industry now and, and he's been amazing because I've farmed for many years, I know what I want to do. But having a soundboard and someone who's as passionate as Yaku has been absolutely phenomenal. So he's helped me a lot with my vineyards. And, um, and through them, we looked at the opportunities of mulching. And uh, we've, we've trucked in, in the last two years, 120 cubes of mulch into a vineyard that's 0.38 of a hectare. Mm. Um, huge amounts of compost. So we've composted and mulched, and I cannot tell you in one season what a difference it made to that vineyard. Mm. No water. We used to carry water in, pumps, hose pipes, all that kind of stuff. Mm. No water, mulch. You cannot believe the soil and what a difference it's made to those vines. You can actually hear the vines. They almost sound happy. It's yeah, the, just, the craziest just a bit thing. Just relaxed, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's just amazing. So, so I've got, you know, I'm really positive about what that vineyard could do in the long term with this new strategy. Mm. And what we're gonna, and I mean, what will come out? I don't know. Like my, a, a huge fear of mine has always been making a vineyard too vigorous because I feel if you make it too vigorous, you 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 have to pick riper, you lose certain elements. A vineyard needs to have a natural balance. Like like at Cape Point, our sugar loading was never that that quick, you know. So we ended up in a scenario where by the time the canopy looked like shit, you knew you better go and pick. And I think that's the case for a lot of Europe. You know, you the the season lesser now, but in the past, the season would dictate. Oaks, we need to pick. Where here, April can be the whole of April. We can have no rain, and it can be perfect sunshine. Yes, you know. So you could technically leave the stuff for a lot longer. Um, you know, there we get a. a you know, so if, uh, sorry, it comes back to the vigor thing. If it's too vigorous, you, you lose that to a certain extent. So it's about finding that balance. But you know, I think this is the the right move, and and, and it's part of be what amazing. people pay for is concentration of flavor. I mean, that's what. Yeah. Part of, you know, when people spend yeah. money on wine, yeah. and serious money, that's kind yeah. of what they want a lot of time. Yeah. Not necessarily just fruit flavor, but yeah. concentration of structure and, yeah. yeah something. Yeah, it's got to be, the wine has to be balanced and complete, and, and, yeah. and not, you know, a lot of times, you know, I, I mean, some of our earlier vintages were quite light and quite lean, and that's why I said to you earlier, we want the wines to become a little bit more vinous. I mean, I, you know, we've, we've made some lovely wines in the past, but I kind of almost see our start more the 2017 vintage, because, you know, that's where we've really been that was made and clipped them and finished here. Yeah. Um, but it's, we've kind of had more of a, it's, it's felt like we've focused on the business, you know? We've, yeah. we've, we've been focused 100% on what we're doing as, 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 as Savage. Yeah. So yeah, so, so as I say, coming back to the girl next door vineyard, I mean, there we've seen how, you know, farming and, and, and making an effort, you physically, in front of you, see the, the, the changes and the development, and it's been, it's been incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because obviously, it's coming off a very low bar um, generally in terms of the viticulture in South Africa. There's always been yeah. good pockets of, of, yeah. of good viticulture, but in general, the viticulture has seemed to be, from what I can gather, is one of the biggest areas of potential improvement because yeah. it was so so low. It was, was so driven towards quantity and convenience and, and market driven rather than, than quality. Um, is that is that the biggest one of the biggest changes you've seen in the industry since you've, you know, been working in it? Sort of like from the 
from 2002 to, to now, over 18 years there? Yeah, look, I mean, I think we've always had good wine, wine producers or wine makers, should you see. Yeah. You know, guys have been technically sound. Mm. Um, you know, I think we have we've have followed a little bit too much. You know, guys want to try and emulate Bordeaux and the Rhone and all of that. And, you know, I suppose you could argue certain wines in our style do that too. But, I mean, you know, when you drink the benchmarks, you, you end up sort of, you know, subconsciously, you know, you do kind of have that frame of reference to, to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, but I think viticulturally, I think you're right. I think that there has been huge improvements there. I still think there's a massive amount of work to be done. There's very few guys who are very active in their vineyards. Um, you know, as I say, my, the, the fortunate thing for me was I got to physically, we, I ran that vineyard at Cape Point and it was the best thing that happened in my career because, yeah. you know, you learn so much in, about understanding it. And it's easy, you know, winemaker, you go into a farm and you say, okay, I want these leaves broken, I want every uh, side shoot broken above the bunch zone or something like that, go and do that. Go and do that yourself. Go and take a few guys and go work in a vineyard in a day and go break side shoots and break leaves or go and sucker or go and prune. It's very easy to you know come sit in your, behind your computer in your winery and, and then just expect people are going to go and do that. It's not easy and, and the farmers have to also make financial sense of it. So a guy comes out and he thinks, well I'm paying 15,000 rand a ton this is a great price, um, you know, the farmer must do this, 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 and this. Um, but at the end of the day, that, that farmer, you know, he's only cropping three tons. You know, maybe his other vineyard on the farm that he irrigates is cropping 10 tons. Maybe he's only getting three or 4,000 rand a ton. But he still starts to question the, the you know, all this extra effort in that little yeah, vineyard. Yeah, the return on so, effort is, um, yeah, yeah. is not there, yeah. So, I mean, we do in a lot of the vineyards, we do the basic stuff for the farmers, then we go in and do our own manipulations ourselves, mm-hmm. um, which generally works. Um, we, you know, it's, it's, it's lucky to, you know, working with our teams. Uh, yes, I've had so many good experiences working with Oaks. Um, we worked in a semi-oil vineyard. We had to uh, go and do some suckering. I had two guys that came and worked with me. And uh, the one guy and I, the, the farmer, he, he, had, he, had, he knew I was coming, but he just didn't think. And he went and uh, sulfur dusted the vineyard like a week before we were there. And I said to the boys, I said, listen, Oaks, this is going to be tough. But we here, it's in Vildijstof, let's just do it. And we worked through that soul for the whole day, suckering the three of us in that, in that vineyard. And then we didn't realize it until we finally got into the car. You get into a closed space, yeah, sweat. Yeah. The two of us, it, we were crying like we were at a funeral <laughs> all the way home from that thing. It was so crazy. But until you've actually, you've got to go out there and do that stuff, you know. And I think if you look at the guys who are making the best wines in South Africa, they're the guys who are, you know, really active in their vineyards. I mean, it's, yeah. um, you know, if you look at what Arnie's doing on his farm, it's insane. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's great to see that people are so, so good. And getting people like Yaku involved in, in the thing just drives that, that, that passion and all that behind it, which is great. The bar has certainly been raised in the, in the last sort of 10 years, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that's what, I mean, that leads me to the next question. Um, starting now, do you think it would be easier for you to start now, or do you think it would be more difficult? Probably the answer is both, but... I think it's, it just gets tougher and tougher every really? year. Yeah, okay. I think to develop a new brand in the market now must be very difficult. So what advice would you give someone, like if you were asked to give a, a speech to the last guys in Elsenburg who are you know, just heading out onto their girls and guys, I should say. Um, yeah, you, it's difficult just to kind of like how would you package it? Like it's like when you get yeah. that question when, you know, you, you're on a Zoom tasting. I was with a Zoom tasting with a whole bunch of Americans, and they're like, "We got 10 seconds at the table. Yeah. What do we say to people to sell South African wine?" It's like, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Tastes you know? really good. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. it's beautiful country. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. rifle a few things off and they say, "No, that's a minute, Duncan." It's like, ah. <laughs> yeah, but it's um, no to say to you, to young guys now. I think it, it, at the end of the day, you got to just follow your your passion, and 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 that I think is passion is the key. If you don't have passion for the game, 
don't even try. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got to really go at it. And also not passion with just, you know, blind passion going into something, you know, without thinking about it. You've got to, you know, you've got to cut your teeth a bit in the industry. You've got to pay your dues. And I think that, that, that you know, maybe working somewhere, doing whatever, um, you know, making the effort, getting out there, getting yourself known. Because I think a lot of the guys, the, the, the younger generation, I'll say younger generation, I mean, it's, uh, I was, Jansis rated one of our wines recently and, and said, one of the young-ish, <laughs> so we're not young anymore. You know, we're like middle-aged now. Yeah. And um, you're one of the uh, the old guys in the uh, the new wave now. No, well, I'm 42. I'm I'm still younger than a lot of no, the guys. In terms of years of under your belt in the industry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Now I'm one of the old crew there. But it's you know I think that 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 a lot of guys don't realise that the behind the scenes there's a lot of hard work that goes in. I mean, I, I use Artie as an example again. You know, everyone thinks that you know Artie's such a character and he just these wines just sell. Go and look how much Artie travels. Mm. Go and look how hard he works the market and yeah. how much socialising he does. You know, he granted he loves it, but it's you know it doesn't just come on a silver platter. So you've got to get out there and you've got to really really work the market, work hard, get your your, your name going out there. And and, and something that that someone said to me, I remember at a tasting at um, Villa Belmonte. I don't know if I say that correctly. Many years ago, it was in 2003, the very first. Actually, the very first wine dinner I did was with a guy called Gerry, who used to own Browns in Ravonia. The second wine dinner I did was here in Cape Town at Villa Belmonte. And a lady pulled me aside afterwards, an older lady, and she just said to me, she says, Duncan, the most important thing you can do in your career is sell yourself. And I think that's, that's true. You know, you need to build a, a brand around your, yourself and, yeah. and well, in an industry where there's... Considering hands- South Africa's um, reputation internationally has not historically been very yeah. good, yeah. That's, I mean, you can't use that. Yeah. Like, you can't use your, the terroir, you can't use the yeah. WO. Yeah. I mean, you can to a very small yeah, degree, yeah, yeah. but I mean, the guy selling Von Romney has got that, got that up on you slightly. Uh, but me, he may be a dick and you're a good guy, and like, well, we'll buy Duncan's wine any, um, yeah. instead, because he's a, he's a nice guy. But you've got to, you've got to get yeah. that out there, and you've got yeah. to spend time in the trade. And I think that's the thing, is it's, it's all, you know, it's, if you look at people, no matter whether it's the wine industry or any business, the mm. people who put the most in generally get the most out. And it's, yeah. um, you know, you, it's a, it's a, you choose it as a way of life. I mean, you, you're going to work a lot. And that's, I think, what people yeah. have to realise. Yeah, people people see the Instagram feed and think it's yeah. a holiday, you know, like a <laughs> sort of like meals and wine gliding all the time. through, yeah, with a with a with a wine thief through a barrel, and that's that's, that's the job. Um, no, that's I mean that's the reality of life, I yeah. suppose, and it's it's actually quite interesting because it's it's like. You know, we all moan about, I'm super guilty of it, you know, you moan about some of the smaller things and then you, you actually start thinking about, like, like I read somewhere now recently, I'm, um, I got given that, this new book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck or whatever it's called. Yeah. And uh, I was just reading through that thing and it's actually true, you know, it's, you, you, you think you're going to get to this end goal, you, you idolize someone who's maybe a rock star or whatever and you look at that and that's what you want. But what you don't see is the journey to there. Ibn Saadi is not Ibn Saadi because he sat back and did nothing for the last couple of years. Neil Ellis is not the name Neil Ellis because he sat back and, you know, you can look at it and say, I want to be there. But if you're not prepared to put that, that very unglamorous bit or chunk. And I think that's the thing is the joy must kind of almost be in the journey. It yeah, sounds crazy to, to, yeah. to, to say it like that, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, I had a similar thing when I was 
still this many. I talk to my young guys who, my assistants and stuff, yeah. like, you have to love stock take. Yeah. You have to love an Excel spreadsheet. Yeah. You have to love getting the wine list in absolute order. Because like yeah. that's, that's all the shit that you have yeah. to do to actually spend those 10 seconds yeah. at the table. And that's what we get the glory for, the 10 seconds at the table. Yeah. But it takes, you know, like 19 hours a day to get to that point. Um, I used to love stock take. I used to love it. Um, can't say I love stock tech, I have to be No, honest. I love it because because it, it makes the rest of my job way easier if yeah. I do it right. If I don't do it right, then the rest of the job is fucking horrendous. Yeah. Someone orders a bottle, yeah. there's only one of them in the cellar, yeah. where the fuck is it? If you if you nail stock tech, you can go in there, back, you're back, and then you spend more time with the guest, yeah. which is where you, know, you actually earn your money. No, exactly. So, That's it, huh? Yeah, it's an interesting one. No, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I look at now, like, for example, I've got a, I mean, my team here, old Manette Combrink, who, who joined me from Great Domain, so she's now on the admin front. And then I've got Banele Vakele, who's my assistant winemaker. He's out of the Protégé program. Yep. Um, we so had Cape, Cape Winemakers Guild, Protégé. Protégé. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, I mean, that's a great initiative. I mean, it's um, really done well. Kiara Scott used to be my assistant, yep. as you know. She, um, she, she's now making the wine at Brookdale. So, yep. so just Amazing hair. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a lot of hair. Yeah. Um, no, look, it was, um, you know, she's now moved on there and has a, a, a winemaking role there. I still consult there. But, I mean, it's a huge opportunity for her, you know, and mm. it's bloody brilliant. You know, Bonella is making his own wines. I had the opportunity. I'm giving him the opportunity. He's making his own wines here in the cellar downstairs, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, uh, and then works for me. Um, but, you know, it's a nice opportunity for him to try and get into the industry. And I've said to him, I said, you know, he's got to bloody well, you know, he's got to realize it's not going to be handed on a silver platter. He's got to get out there and get stuck in and, and, and do it. And the thing about wine is, you know, whether you, if you produce a wine, it's got to be good. Because you're not just selling it in South Africa. You're selling it wherever in the world. And someone who pulls your cork, no matter what your background, who you are, whatever, yeah. if your wine's not good, you're never going to make well, it in the business. always larger than demand. So. Exactly. Yeah, you, no, have exactly. to, you have to create the demand. Yeah, because yeah, it's not going to just exist. Uh, no, look, I mean that's the that's the the thing, I suppose. Obviously, we're talking mostly about the fine wine end, but I mean that's not South Africa's past, and yeah. certainly not the present in terms of volumes and, yeah. and, and money. Yeah, it's 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 a pretty insignificant part. Yeah, I mean there is a a larger part of the industry that I know very little about, to be honest, which yeah. is the bulk area. Yeah. Um, and you've got some experience in that. Yeah, so 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 when we you know when we when we wanted to do this um, savage wines, I realised like if you look at farming setups, you know farming setups that are focused on one crop, it's high risk. You, if you look at the guys that are super successful, a good example is the guys we buy Grenache from in uh, well the Thief in the Night comes from their property. Uh, the the Fonsale brothers, um, Porco Boudre, you know from grapes to rooibos to stone fruit to citrus, they've got it all. You know, there's ups and downs, but they weather the storm, and, and they're, they're very savvy businessmen as well. Sounds like where Artie's going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, but, but exactly, Artie's a, he's an operator, and he's a savvy, smart businessman. You know, you always make it sound like he doesn't know what he's talking about, but he knows what's going on. But you know, those, that, that was kind of our approach from a business point of view, is savage was, is the dream and where we want to be. This is like what feeds the soul. You lie in bed at night, and you actually stress more about it than anything else, because you want it to be, you know, everyone wants it to be it's perfect. It's your baby, yeah. You know, that's yeah just what it is but having a mixed approach so a little bit of everything so I think in the, in the industry at the moment and that's maybe better advice to go back to your question about young students is don't be scared to take on different things to try and supplement income in that so so we I was trying, um, to, f- I was trying to feed you that bit, but you just didn't pick it up <laughs> a little bit slow here yeah. in South Tim, right? no it's um, you know the thing is is that like so it's a the taste bowler, the bowler always blames the batter though <laughs> 
Now I've got a little collaboration with um, Taste Low. Um, we we oh, we've known each other for years. So uh, the, my relationship with Taste is is you know goes back to he did a harvest at, at um, Taste is out in Durbanville. Durbanville, uh, yeah. Dimmerstal. Yeah, we, he did a. Um, I harvested baiting for Vachten. So through Herman and, and Jacques, you know, when I didn't, oh, I have to come, uh, there's another thing I have to talk about there. That's just, uh, you know, through Herman and Jacques, when I didn't know what to do, because obviously Herman had now helped me get this post that he had gone and recommended. Yeah. So it's something I didn't know at the time. And, and how I, I talked about getting the job at Cape Point, and that's where this whole relationship thing comes in. I had no idea until many years later. Herman Kishbaum had gone to, to Sabrunt and told him that to take a chance, I did say this earlier, take a chance on, on Duncan. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know that he said, I will be waiting in the wings if there's any problems and I will help you free of charge. Give this guy a chance. All right. Never knew that at yeah, the time. Okay. So if he hadn't done that, I would never have got the job. Yeah. And um, so it was quite cool. So I always had this, like whenever I, and I was even too scared to ask Herman some of the questions that I wanted, you know, I didn't know what the answer to, you know, was. So I'd go via Jacques. Say, so Jacques, what do we do here? Jacques passed away a couple of years back, but I'd always ask him and then he would, go indirectly ask Herman and we would end up, you know, trying to get to the solution to the problem I had at Cape Point. And I mean, Herman's not an idiot. He knew exactly what was going on. Mm. But yeah, so, so he, that was what was super cool back then. But then I got to know Tace through his harvest. He worked at Beethoven And then we set up a, uh, we just talked about doing volume. Because I, I always thought, you know, second labels, a second label is, is, can be a very important part of the business. And I mean, you know, all the overseas guys, you know, you you, you, you look at a, a Bordeaux Chateau, for example, or Burgundy producer, they put their younger vines or whatever into their second one instead of putting it all into their top one. That kind of, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, we're here, it's kind of like, you know, people often end up buying down, you know, you, it can cannibalize your, your, your main market. Yeah. Um, so I was always very cautious of a second label. So we decided to go like complete opposite ends of the spectrum and go premium and supermarket and yeah. nothing in between. But also a key difference here is a, a very difference in uh, branding and yes, yeah, like they're not related. Very different style, yeah. branding, everything. So that was, was a, and, and also and, not based on your personality either. Yeah. Uh, so you, you look, Savage is a hand cell. Someone in a supermarket, LD or, <coughs> or Morrison's, for example, they have no idea who Duncan Savage is or Taste is. You know, um, it's, it, it's of no relevance to them. They go in, they pick a bottle up, it's a nice label, and off they go. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so we wanted to get into that side of things and, and, um, and just, you, you're essentially a salesman. You know, we, we, we buy and sell not bulk wine, we bottle it here in South Africa and we don't sell anything in the local trade because distribution here is a, is a bit, a bit pricey and we feel like it's going to impact a little bit on, on our, well, the our premium there, brands the and the margins the, on the there. economy scale. So we focus on the, that business is focused on the, on, the, on the UK and we do quite big production across over that side and it's, mm -hmm. it's, you know, for me it's been great because it's helped supplement what we've done here. You know, like yeah. when I started Savage, like I looked at, and, and people do, you know, you look at you know, leaders in the industry, i.e. Neil Ellis, Eben Sadi, people like that. And I looked at Eben, and every time you go to Eben's setup, you know, you have a lot of, you know, you're very envious of, of what he's built up over, over the years. And, you know, as I said, it's not through any, you know, luck or whatever, through hard work. But he started in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s. I only started very recently, you know, on my own. First vintage on my own, obviously 17, as I said earlier. I don't want to wait until I'm 55 to have everything. So I not have everything, but be able to.
press my grapes decently in a, in a decent bag press, have a bit of capacity in some yes. eggs, be able to afford yeah, yeah. a food run. Not everything, just mm. lease vineyards and pl pay people to go and do extra actions. Mm. So we wanted to supplement our income by, by having something like that. So it's a three-pronged approach, it's savage, and then I take, I've taken on one consultancy in the form of Brookdale, which is a, a, a farm owned by Tim Rudd um, out in Pohl, which is just an amazing place. And the Rudd family is just a phenomenal family, so it's been super cool getting involved with them. Hence Kiara's move across to, to Brookdale from Savage, giving her that opportunity. And um, yeah, and then, the, and then the volume front. So I mean, we, we, our customers are LD Morrisons and, and uh, um, Waitrose, and um, it's actually been yeah, a little bit of the sounds of Salt River. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's been fantastic, you know, getting to see a total different side of the industry. Mm. You know, traveling and going and tasting with buyers that, you know, you, you say to them fancy wine names of South African producers or whatever, they don't really interested or know, you know. Yeah, yeah. They, it's a total different way of looking at the wine market. Yeah. And it's actually been quite refreshing because you look at a wine in a very different way. And the scary thing is, is that most people are drinking wine or drinking wines like that and not these ones that we romance, Absolutely you not. know, no end about and terroir and all this kind of stuff. You yeah, know? in terms of frequency of use, there's no, not a, there's no comparison, is there? No, the volumes are crazy. And yeah. it's, um, and I think that's the thing, you know, there the, are the, a lot of unsung heroes in the industry that don't necessarily get the credit of some of the young up and coming guys, you know, like a Tim Atkin or, or whoever, um, you know, guys that have, have, have really played a huge role in South Africa becoming a player in the world of wine, they're not necessarily going to see some of these big guys who make volume, who supply people like myself or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's, that's you know, we, we have to remember that's a huge chunk of the industry and, and, and not only just as in terms of seller space, but if you think of the farmers, you know, the farmers are, are selling, you know, most of the farms sell a few grapes to a few small guys, but the bulk of the production going to these bigger guys and I think that's the real worry now with this the, the shit at the moment is sellers are full and Michael Fridgen summed it up the other day on on, on his chat with John Matham I mean yeah. vineyards are going to get pulled out left right and center now so we need all elements of the whether it's someone who's selling bag in a box or someone who's selling you know wines at at four pound on the shelf in the UK there is a place for everything and you 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 kind of but arrogant if you say there's not you know it's it's like you need to realize that every industry has to function at different levels yes. and i think the wine industry is no no exception so without that um the volume side of the business and maybe without the consultancy how long would it have taken you to t come into your own um, facility do you think if you only was relying on savage look we we, we took that we took on debt to get into the facility so our, yeah. our aim is to i don't like debt so i want to get debt paid off as quickly as possible so yeah. we would have been in here i imagine okay um, but just with a bigger debt it would have just we would have taken a lot longer to to service our debts yeah okay and um and i think that you know all those elements have, have come together to allow us to to do what we do at savage you mm -hmm. know so it's it's played such a big role in the business, Savage in its own right is a profitable business and makes financial sense. Um, but obviously, when you're talking Except about when you're talking to sales, then you look know, right on the edge <laughs> and can't really afford to pay any. Uh, <laughs> no, look, I mean obviously the, 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 the dynamics change now a little bit, but I mean, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it is. It, look, every entity has to be sustainable. Mm. You can't subsidise, and I think that's where the industry has, has its challenges. The wine industry, there's no natural selection. You know, there's a lot there's of a lot of dead wood out there. Very isn't wealthy people. Yeah. Who can weather storms, um, you know, whatever it might be, from COVID to to whatever, um, and I think that's always a bit of a concern. So if that's another challenge for young new guys coming into the industry because a lot of the guys just hang around, even though they're making losses. 
And I think it's it's a business thing, you know. Everything yeah. has to be sustainable. Mm. You know, we can't. We I don't have the means to cross subsidise businesses and that. It's yeah. um, you know, yes, investing in you know, we bought another building alongside us now. Things like that have been made possible by doing you know volume wine into the UK. Mm. And maybe we sleep a slightly a little bit more comfortably at night, you know, knowing that we you know don't know. I think lying in bed, not knowing how you're going to service debts and things. Yeah. Yeah, if you just think of the the trade at the moment, the restaurants and stuff. Yeah, when I you, mean, you see, yeah, you see um, interest uh, or rent due like just keep rising. It's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not a pretty picture. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, no news out of government, like no information out of out of government. Uh, it's frightening. It's hectic, dude. It's frightening. So listen, I've got. I can. I've still, I can talk. I can probably talk for another two hours. Yeah, you need well, to I tell can, me what. No, no, I, you, I was maybe um, wanted to chat to you about fruit security um, going forward. I mean, your brand doesn't own any vineyards yet. No, no. So how are you worried about fruit security going forward? I mean, is is that a? It's a huge concern. Yeah, mm. I mean, there's obviously other guys who have, uh, who are colleagues in your style of business in terms yeah. of. Evans now planting. Chris Eilert's bought a, a vineyard. Mm. Um, Craig Hawkins is 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 is, is bought a, um, yeah. a farm planting it. Same with yeah. Jan Mayer. Uh, is that something down the line that you look at, or is that? That's what we want to do. Um, we have, in fact, um, I've spoken to someone about a piece of ground, um, but unfortunately, I don't think there's an opportunity there because yeah, the right. guy doesn't want to sell. So you'd be um, looking at planting rather than buying something that uh, already exists? Yeah, look, so the way I've looked at it is at the moment in this country, there's huge risk. You know, we don't know what the future is going to hold. Yeah. So, you know, COVID, yes, has, has, has thrown a spanner in the works, but there were, we saw, there, there's been writing on the wall for a while. Yeah. So to what extent does one invest? So, so the way I've done it is um, I didn't have the cash. I couldn't buy something. I didn't want to go into more debt. Mm. Um, I wanted to kind of like just, you know, stand back a bit and see. If the right piece of land came along at the right price, for sure. Mm. There's a property I would like to buy in Stellenbosch, but it's 40 million. There's a property I'd like to buy in the Pekingese Cliff, but it's 25 million. You know, it's a lot of money. I don't have that cash to spend in a property that, properties that need lots of work. Yeah. I can go and buy a piece of ground somewhere up the West Coast for very little, but you know, then there's a huge amount of investment, there's a long lead time. I've already got wines from specific sites, i.e. Darling, all that, that I'm not gonna change and suddenly start farming off one property. Yeah. So you have to really think carefully about the dynamic of how you're gonna do it. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is I've, you know, my, my risk and exposure is, is, is obviously that I could lose a site, um, but I'm now planting vineyards on other people's ground where I have lease agreements or whatever it might be, um, and that is a high-risk move, but at the same time, what's, what, where, where do, you know, is there more risk in loaning money and going and buying a property and developing it? Yeah, it's a bit of you an each-way bet between exactly, those two things. Exactly. You know, yeah. So I see, actually think my risk is, is slightly less at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, I, I have to be sustainable. If I, if I go off and I follow my heart and I, and I just make a decision based on where I want to go from a passion point of view, I'm going to buy a piece of land straight away. Yes. But if I stand back and think about it from a business point of view, I have to really hang on and make sure it is the right decision and the right piece of land. It has yeah. to fit into your 
your business model. Um, the front section of Stelly's, I mean, you know, that, that whole front section. When I say front section, I mean that whole pool could dry around into Kales River and stuff. Mm-hmm. I love that place. You know, okay. I love yeah, Maritime. Yeah. I love but wind off the sea. that's granite heavy soils. Granite soils. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. And unfortunately, those areas still carry a, a, a fair premium. Mm. Um, well, it's hitting into um, residential areas as well, which doesn't yeah. make the yeah, yeah, land yeah. super affordable generally. No, no, exactly. <laughs> so a lot of it's on the urban edge, as you say, and it mm. becomes a bit of a challenge. But but the thing is, is that, the, so long, I mean, long story short, I would love to own land. I mean, I've, you know, farming is, is the most amazing thing. I think as South Africans and Australians, to a certain extent, I, I suppose as well, there's just a desire to to own and work your own land. I mean, I work my backside off and the girl next door, we work hard in all our other vineyards, um, and it's not yours at the end of the day, you know? Mm. But at the same token, it's what I can afford to do at this point in yes. time. Yeah, yeah. So it's we have to also, you. you know, be realistic about the business. Um, you know, and, and then you buy a piece of land, you plant it, and as I say, you've now got a scenario where um, do you stop making this wine because you've now got another wine from that property? And the whole business kind of takes on a different direction, you know? Yeah. It's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how the dynamic um, you know, Butcher's dynamic, I think, is quite different. Obviously, he was, you know, already making wine from that property, so it kind of had a an, its own identity based on that site. Yeah. So it, it it fits in nicely, and I think he's done the right thing there. I mean, it's um, you know, Krista obviously made a huge amount of effort on the property, and and Butch will just take it to another level. So, so yeah. yeah, but it's. Uh, you know, I think from a farming point of view, it's, it's, it's super interesting because you never really know. I mean, I've done a lot of work with Johan Reinick over the years, bought some grapes from Johan. Yep. Um, I mean, he's, he's an amazing human being, makes some beautiful wines. That whole area where he farms, he's just bought a new piece of ground above his property, Kay Nash's old site. Unbelievable. You know, granitic soil overlooking False Bay. It's just, it's just insane. Um, you know, and, and, I, and I think there's that yearning to have that, you know, stand in your own vineyard. Oh, must be amazing. Eh? Yeah. How much time does the volume stuff take up in your year? Yeah, look, I mean, I have to say with the volume side of things, we're very lucky because we work with um, two people that help us run that business that are amazing. Um, you know, Tace and I, I'm, I do, I, I work with the suppliers and we have a relationship with the clients. Mm-hmm. So it's a marketing driven yep. thing, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. scenario essentially. Um, and then also just blending and making sure that the quality control is there. But uh, Linda Pretorius, she does a lot of work for a lot of sellers. Yeah, she's, she's amazing. She's a superstar. She yeah. runs that she essentially runs mm. the movements and that and that business. And then There's a lot work. of secrets old Linda too. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Linda knows all the secrets. <laughs> she should get some life insurance yeah, taken so out. Linda could um, <laughs> spill some serious beans, eh? Yeah. But uh, no, and then Lucy Warner. Lucy Warner, um, she's familiar to quite a few guys in the industry. She's consulted to us for a long time. Mm. She's also such an amazing, I call her Tani Lucy. She's an amazing lady. She, she and I have worked together for a long time. And, uh, and she's, you know, they make it to a certain extent possible. I mean, we go in and put on smiley faces and, you know, did a bit of selling and a bit of this and yeah. have a good time with whether it's Victoria Mason or, you know, the guys from LD or Mark Jarman from Morrison's or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just maintain relationships and sell a, a concept and a, and a plan. Mm-hmm. So it does, it's difficult to quantify the amount of time because there's such an overlap, you know, the, yeah, the yeah. industry, you know, journalists, um, uh, you know, guys like Jamie are not only writing about fine wine, they, you know, also have to appeal to, write about wines that appeal to the masses. And um, so there's that overlap. So to quantify what takes up the most time, I mean, Savage is by far the most time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You no, know, no, that's, he, um, no, yeah, it's, certainly. But I didn't know what sort of, uh, obviously, it's the Venn diagram is two overlapping circles. Yeah. I was wondering how much overlap there yeah. actually is 
in yeah. that sort of sense. Yeah, we're not running off and pruning the vineyards that we, you know, we're talking hundreds of thousands of liters of wine here, you know. Yeah. So, you know, once you go to the girl next door and you spend a couple of days pruning those 2,000 vines, mm. and you stand back and you sort of think to yourself, well, time is, is probably the, the scarcest of commodities. And yeah. you sit there and you've now spent three days pruning. You could have been on your computer selling or in the trade or something. Yeah. But if you're not doing that kind of stuff, you're actually not relevant as a wine producer. Because yes. if you, I mean, I, I don't know how many winemakers there are, hopefully there are none that don't know how to prune. But like pruning is such a basic, it is the most amazing thing. I mean, people who have like psychological issues should be taught how to prune because you just, you switch off. You switch off without switching off. Your mm. mind wonders, but you, every vine is different. You have to think. It's, yeah. it's the, one of the most therapeutic things you can do. It's yeah. incredible. It's, it's, it's like meditation. It frees the mind. Yeah. You know, it, it, you actually stop worrying about all the other shit because you have to actually pay attention to what you're doing. Um, no, it's, it's, it, You've got to have, it is you a, have to have it is that a form stuff. of meditation for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And also you, you develop a relationship with a parcel, with a vineyard, breaking leaves in Valiesdorp or going and pruning in, in, in Darling or going yeah. and working with a team in, in Pekingese Kloof or whatever it might be. Um, you get a relationship with these guys and it's, it's funny when you're like an outsider and you come into the block working with a team, you know, the Oaks are quite quiet in the beginning. I always used to notice that like working with a team at Cape Point. The Oaks didn't have much to say the first hour and then once they get used to you there then they start to open up and the sense of humour amongst people who actually have nothing is amazing. I mean you think that these guys, go, they, a lot of them are earning you know, piecework sort of rates, work is erratic. Um, yet they they are so jovial, so many of them. Um, you know, it's just it's crazy. So it's it's a, it's obviously. I mean, that's. I mean, the industry. I suppose in, in in many countries has two very different sides to it. You know. Yeah. But it's um, that's also an important side of it. But in the meantime, your 19s are coming out soon. When are they due out? Okay, so 19s are um, being released in end of August. Okay. Um, we stick to the same release dates every year. Um, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen this year. For better or for worse. This year. <laughs> <laughs> Might be doing a lot of barter deals and uh, drinking a fair amount ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Now the 19s are, I have to say, it's, 19, it's, it's five 19s and an 18. Okay. Um, it's obviously the best vintage you've ever made because it's the one you're selling. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can tear running down my cheek because yeah. I think of those wines. And that one 18 wine is like easily the best 18. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> no, look, I have to say it really is. But, uh, <laughs> no, it's, um, no, look, I, I think it's, as I said to you earlier, you know, having a, a winery is not the be all and end all, but from a quality control point of view, it's just it's made a huge difference, and and that coupled with the fact that we're getting to know our vineyards that much better is making a huge difference. So, so it's, what, I mean, just quickly, I don't want to derail this too far, but what in the winery having your own space versus? I mean, you weren't exactly. I mean, you still you were still in charge of the space at Cape Point up to a. I mean, you were you were in charge of the space. Obviously, you didn't own the space. But you were in charge of it in terms of the running of it. How is that different to here? What 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 differences has it made to moving to here? Look, Cape Point was a white wine cellar, so okay, okay. you know we we our red production we weren't geared for it. You know, okay. it's um, uh, you know here we're able to basket press, um, yeah, right. you know, so diff a, diff ferment and age in yeah. food, right? do okay. you know different sort of you know we, we can really and 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 being focused on this brand, I can now you know 100% focus on Savage. If I want to leave something on skins for five weeks, I'll leave it on skins for five weeks. If I want to leave it for two months, three months, 
I can do that. I can yeah. do whatever I want. And, and that's the nice thing. Whatever I want within reason, obviously, you know, to the benefit of the wine in the long term. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's given me an ultimate control and quality. I mean, we are hectic about cleanliness and, and everything, as are most of the guys. Yeah. But I mean, it's attention to detail and, and that is important. I mean, obviously, from a vineyard point of view, there, 90% of, of what you need is, is already done. So we, we make as much effort as we can there but that doesn't mean you stop at the winery. So, you know, you, 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 you take it just to another level. And I think that, you know, those increments of, of, of quality that one adds, how do you quantify it? I mean, you know, it's like, are you adding half a percent quality-wise to that wine by spending, I don't know, 30% more hours on the, on the production? Yeah. I don't know, yeah, yeah. but every little bit helps. And I, and I, and I think that, that that's the, the thing. It's just having control and knowing, you know, understanding a, a place, getting to know a building as well. A building like also has its quirks and, you know, the way the temperature dynamic works during summer, winter, you know, all that. We don't have fancy cooling and all that kind of stuff. So you get to understand a, a building and the way the sun moves and all that kind of stuff. So, it, I mean, that's minor, minor things in the grand scheme of things, but it makes a huge, a huge difference. So for us, I mean, from the for, from 17 made in a in a in a communal sort of scenario, it clipped them to 18 made here, and then 19 obviously as well, and now we've just done the 2020s. I mean, I just think every year we've become more comfortable. Every year we become more comfortable with the vineyards. Every year we see, you know, like whole bunch for example. We were, you know, or, or, or that sort of round pig in a square hole sort of scenario, or the other way. Sorry, the square pig in a round hole. I think is the way it actually goes. I don't know. You can do it. Neither works. <laughs> Neither work, Depending yeah. on the sizing. <laughs> no, but you know, the thing is, is that um, um, you, 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 you kind of, you, we have a style that we want to follow, um, but you, you, you have to fine tune that every year. So there's still elements of, everyone talks about whole bunch. Whole bunch is sexy. Everyone wants to whole bunch ferment and everyone talks about it. You know, so, so is whole bunch the answer? We were doing everything. Especially when oak's so expensive, it is the answer. Well, you know, you go into to, to, to whole bunch ferments, for example, and we were sticking to generally like 50% as a rule of thumb because it seemed like a, you know, on the fence kind of number. <laughs> yeah. and, so, uh, so you could yeah. please both camps. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then, so and so then we, we started... 50% whole bunch, it's 50% distance, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it sends, same, the same thing sends a different message. Yeah, yeah but we started realizing that, you know, Syrah and, and Lampfewacht, you know, we can push that to 100% whole bunch if we want to. And we have 2019, we, we, we 100% stalks. I mean, some of it was destemmed and stalks added back. We, you know, we have to also look at capacity. That's another discussion, you know, destemming whole bunches. We want to avoid too much of a carbonic element in the wine. You know, I don't, some of that, because that just, we talked about new world fruit. Now, two bunch, whole bunch, it's not like Europe, you know, your, your, your fruit profile changes considerably, so you have to be very careful. And pH is an issue sometimes. pH is an yeah. issue, all of that stuff, Sinso. So yes, gung-ho on, on whole bunch on Sinso, but those pHs woof, just skyrocket once that thing goes through metal. So, you know, you have to kind of find that, that scenario. So like, we, we've done certain ones, we've gone more whole bunch, thief in the night with a Grenache, we found a lot of herbal elements coming out of those stalks. Um, we've actually reined that into like 20%. Are we there yet? The 19, are we there? It's the most vinous wine, it's the darkest colored wine we've ever had in the Savage Cellar. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, it actually looks like someone else's wine. 100% um, D-stem. Torriga Nacional and Syrah, we were whole bunching the Syrah components. It's a co-ferment, picked on the same day, 50-50, roughly. Um, and it seemed to work. And don't get me wrong, the wines we've made, I think, are beautiful. They're quite lean, they're quite tight. The 17 especially, quite austere. 
Um, but if I look at the texture, and the, it, it almost feels that's the right direction. Maybe we go up to 10 or 20% depending on a vintage. Um, but just to fine tune the styles to fit the vineyard and to fit the wine that comes out the other end. So there's no predetermined plan and we're just sticking to that, you know, like the, that's the recipe and we're not changing. Every year we do change a little bit, so there are going to be slight stylistic shifts, but under the grand, uh, well, the grand house style, if you call it that, you know, yeah. picked earlier with the freshness in mind and yeah. drinkability I mean, it's, it's, of wines. I mean, the Savage name on the label does describe the wine to a certain degree as also, yeah. like, it's not just a, a, an expression of the vineyard, it's your expression of the vineyard or your yeah, expression yeah. of the vintage. But I mean, I, I still think is as, as, as more an expression of the vineyard than, than my expression of the. Of, yeah, but of the, I'm just the, saying, it, it's, it's 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 inseparable once it's in the bottle. Yeah. So yeah, as you say, yeah, you do get producer-specific stylistic, yeah, hallmarks and characteristics. Yeah. 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 No, look, it's it's a funny thing. This whole dynamic of of ranges and and, and pricing and where ones at. I mean, we've been super conservative on our pricing from the get go. Um, you know, I, I looked at, um, you know, I've watched pricing all the time and it, it's eye-opener to see how high pricing is becoming in South Africa. And it's a good thing. I mean, you know, we need some ultra-premium wines out there. I think it's a good thing, to be honest. So I think separation in the market is a good thing. Mm. I mean, if, if, if everyone's releasing their wines at 350, 400 rand, you know, the, the fine wine section, then it's uh, then it's going to struggle, you know, yeah. and, the, and the customer won't know what to yeah. do because a lot of customers base their purchasing a lot on price. Mm. You know, some won't look at something at over 150 yeah. bucks. Yeah. Some only look at wines that are over 250 because below that isn't you know yeah. isn't good enough for them. And it's seen as cool. Yeah. Uh, for me, it's been more important to sell our wine, and, and we sell out every year, which is great. We produce yeah. roughly 40,000 bottles a year for Savage, um, as that specific range, and um, and it works for us. So at the sort of 280, 270 rand a bottle mark, we've kept our pricing the same for the 2019 vintage in light of the the COVID scenario and all of that. Yeah. Um, obviously, the trade's going to be very different. You know, we've always wanted to have wines that are approachable, but will age, but that are you know we've the businesses has kind of taken a stance and that's just the way we want to keep it, you know. We're not yeah. going to bring any reserve flash. And I mean, a, a couple of years back, I was thinking, well, how do we decide on pricing? Should Savage Red be a lot more expensive? Shouldn't it be? And all the wines get the same treatment. We work as hard in all the different vineyards. So we just made them all the same bloody price and it yes. just made sense. And Savage Red is, is slight, is but 10 Rand a bottle more and the girl next door is a little bit more expensive. There must be wines yeah, within that portfolio that uh, demand is higher than, than other wines though. I mean that's just the, through the nature of things that's not Yeah, yeah, for sure. Then how are you going to manage that going forward? I mean I have the same conversation with, with John Seckham with his, his range of wines. Yeah. Um, some of them have yeah. much higher demand on, on the others and they're made in vastly different quantities. But he's very in a similar vein tried to say well no you know i want to keep them all in the same yeah. ballpark uh, and so you, you try to go down the route of like allocations and, yeah. which is really difficult yeah. um, but that's the only way that you can keep the pricing sensible on some of the wines because the demand is there so if you don't have that demand um, the idea of um, allocations i.e restrictions on how much you can buy at any one time yeah it could end up all in one person's um, and that's, that doesn't help anybody. You have to manage it. Yeah. You have to manage it. Yeah. So I mean, you know, there's demand, a wine like Girl Next Door, 2017 vintage, 680 or whatever bottles. Mm. You know, it gets huge write-ups and scores. Thanks for the six-pack, by the way. I really appreciate it. <laughs>
<laughs> Did you get the 19 six pack in your boot? <laughs> I dropped it off there now. <laughs> no, listen, it's, um, the, the thing is you have to manage it because those wines are always going to be in high demand. But if I think about last year's release, for example, you know, the 18s with the 17 red, um, you know, the two best wines in the lineup for me last year were the, the white and red, the two biggest production wines. And I mean, I can say that because they sold out. You know, it's, it's um, the, and I'm not saying they sold out because they, they, you know, I can say it because we don't have to try and push them. I don't want anyone yes, to yes, think yes, that we yeah, are yeah, trying yeah, to push yeah, yeah. them. Um, you know, those two wines were just absolutely stellar. And I think that all the, all the wines showcase, so the, the, the follow the line, you know, Sinso is by nature going to be a more difficult sell. Someone overseas doesn't necessarily identify with Sinso. He doesn't see it on a label all the time. We know about Sinso here because it gets talked about in South Africa. But some oak sitting in Sweden or Switzerland or whatever, what the fuck is Sinso? And it's not always seen as a premium variety either. So exactly. it's like, has a sort of a, yeah. it's like the, the hunaput of, uh, yeah, <laughs> of, exa- of the reds. Yeah, but it is like, exactly. It's like, well, how, how much can you actually charge for a Sinso before it becomes a little bit of a piss take? Because is it a is it a noble variety? Yeah. Has it got yeah. that much potential yeah. in the bottle, or is it just a really delicious drink? You know? But that that's where old vineyards and all that that sort yeah, of concept yeah, yeah. comes yeah. in, because suddenly you, you, and the, you and the name on the back, you know, all this front, the savage helps also. No, no, that plays yeah. a role. But I think if I look at follow the line, I would, you know, there's some vintages that follow the line. 2014, um, 2017. That 2017, I, did, I had a bottle the other day, decanted it. That wine is so lean, tight, beautiful. You can throw that throw that in a few years' time into any burgundy lineup, and it'll stand. It's ground. Stand out. <laughs> no, won't stand out. No, no, no. I think that's the thing is that that, that Sinso does. Sinso made badly from a from a very average vineyard is going to be a very average wine. There's no two ways about it. But I think Sinso made well from, from respecting an old vineyard can be a pretty profound wine. You've heard it here first, folks. Uh, uh, Darling Sinso equals uh, Von Romany. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a fraction of the price. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, if you, you know, you, people just these days, true, you, go, you, go and, you go and buy a bottle of Burgundy. I mean, you just have to go. I mean, I bought some, you know, every year I buy some Burgundy from Great Demands. I look at those prices and, you know, you, you buy a case of, of Follow the Line for one de- bottle. That's where demand is. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's the secret of demand, isn't yeah. it? I mean, I'm not, you know, it's not earth shattering new science yeah. or like yeah. massive revelation, but demand sets price. No, no, look at yeah. So I mean, we could, we would, I mean, we could make from that vineyard. We, we keep the sensor. We could probably make a lot more of it. We stick to eight to ten thousand bottles a year because that's a comfortable number. It sells fairly easily. It's it it works for us as a, from a business point of view. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the follow the line and Savage Red and White are the three bigger volume wines in the range. And I say bigger volume. I mean, the production volumes this year are nine thousand nine hundred bottles of the Savage White, eleven thousand, eleven and a half thousand bottles of Savage Red, and eight thousand. Bottles and follow the wine, okay. follow, follow the line. Yeah. Um, so you've hit your thirty thousand bottles then? No, long ago. Really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, long <laughs> ago. No, we we, we we hover around the forty thousand, slightly over mark. The, for the for this year's release, we are a little bit less. We found that a lot of the vineyards we deal with were a little bit down on crop in nineteen. Mm-hmm. Some guys have found the opposite. It depends on the sites, obviously, yeah. and the soils. So we we are twelve percent down on production this year. We are yeah. just over thirty-seven thousand bottles in total. The small volume wines will always be, you know, the thief in the night, um, are we there yet, uh, girl next door, never been asked to dance. I mean, the sweet wine, the not tonight Josephine we, we made last year, I mean, those, you know, we could have sold them 10 times over, you know, it's, it's the, the demand is there for those wines and the demand is there for the other wines too. I mean, we, we've been super lucky. We sell out very, fairly quickly every year, which is great. And, and hopefully we can maintain that, you know, and that's why I don't want to, you know, there's the temptation to suddenly grow and say, well, you know, we sit for a number of months of the year sold out. 
let's increase production 20%, 30%. I think there's such a fine, there's a fine, fine line in this game, you know, where you go from sold out to suddenly sitting on stock. And it's, you know, I would rather make less wine and be sold out than have too much. I mean, I think that's a... Yeah, because then you need to make decisions about that affect the brand going forward. Like, no, 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 for yeah. sure. You, you, you start to affect the brand. And, and the wine industry on paper makes fantastic sense. You know, you look at your, 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 your costs and you, you can make a, a decent living out of the game, but you add value and you can't sell it. You have stock sitting there and it could kill you very quickly. So we've, yeah. we've been very cautious with that. And I think that the, the numbers we at all, they work. Um, uh, I mean, the, the Savage Red, for example, now being focused. I mean, if I talk about this year's release, I mean, we, we, Savage Red 2018 is the first one that's 100% Stellenbosch or, origin. We were coastal origin last year with a 17, which was mostly that Stellenbosch vineyard, but still a tiny little bit of Swartland. This is now focused entirely on this Langverwacht vineyard, which I share with Buchenholz Kloof. We, we work it together. And um, yes, I tell you, Dave, it's, uh, that vineyard's amazing. I mean, it, the 18 is just, 17 I thought was a beautiful one. Loads of white pepper, you know, that real sort of lifted red fruit aromatic that you want from, from Syrah. Um, well, I suppose that's what I want from Syrah and a few other people around the, 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 the wine world. But the 18 has just got a, a leaner, tighter structure to it, which is quite weird because I would have thought that would have been more typical of 17. Um, you know, this, this amazing line through it that's, typical of, of, I think, Langverwacht. And it's so nice to be able to showcase that in the first wine that's 100% from that, you know, that, that area and those soils and, and all of that, which is for me a, a big thing, because you know, we've got a very close connection to that property. We've now farmed it for a couple of years along with old uh, Bokum, Franz Hanekom. And, um, and the wine is beautiful. It's young, it's angular, it's tight, it's lean, it's our style, but it's a wine that I think is gonna age beautifully over the next couple of years. Um, the white, the 19 white is, is quite almost like our 17. 17 whites in general were quite lean, you know, across most guys' ranges. Ours took seven months to ferment. The wine was textural, you know, lots, you know, everything did mellow. 19 was the same. Long ferments, 100% mellow. We don't intervene on the mellow front. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. With Sauvignon, there's plenty of acid in the, in the, in the wine, so we don't need to worry about it. Um, sometimes, in fact, we want it to happen because there can be quite a bit of acid from Kaiman's Hut. But um, the 19 is a much more textural, stony mineral. You know, I say stony mineral and textural in the same sentence, it doesn't really make sense. But there's the stony minerality to the wine with this massive mid palate sort of texture, um, you know, through those long, slow ferments and that bit of Shannon that's in the wine. Um, again, you know, very much more a food wine. It's not that everyday smashing in the sun next to the pool. It needs, needs a bit of cellaring and needs a bit of food. And then going on to the stalwarts, I mean, follow the line, um, you know, the nine... Just before you run into those, ideally, um, you know, outside of needing to free up cellar space and pay for stuff every year, when would you ideally like to, like, when would be the best time for the wines to be released, do you think? Like, in a perfect world, if you had unlimited space, unlimited money, at what age would you release the wines? So I think we're doing the right thing with Savage Red, for example. So that's, that spends oh, yeah, a year in yeah. 500s and then a year in Fudra. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in fact, what I'm doing this year is I've bought two extra concrete eggs and allocated two more Fudra. So we're cutting, we, the, let's say, 60% of the wines going into 500s, mm-hmm. the balance into Fudra and concrete and then will then go be blended after a year and put back into only food row, so no 500s. Okay. You know, I think that Syrah responds well to more reductive um, uh, storage in the winery, where Cabernet maybe needs a little bit more, you know, I mean, it's not my perception, it's what's been done for centuries. 
Um, you know, it just makes sense. And, uh, and I think that in general, in terms of the range, I think the white is fine to hit the market when it does. So we, we bottle in January um, into the first week in Feb. The last few vintages that have been early have been a challenge because grapes start coming and we start to bottle. <laughs> trying to do two things but at once. it all works out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you shit yourself at the time, but it kind of comes together. And um, and the and the thing is, is that even um, if it doesn't, the story remains the same. Exactly. Oh, we almost, we almost, <laughs> we almost, we almost, yeah, we almost got cucked, but uh, we just managed to uh, to do it without any issues. Like the way you think. But, uh, so it's. Um, the, the, the thing is, and then we, we age for you know, a good few months in bottle till the end of August. Mm. So I think that's, for some of the wines like Follow the Line, all of that, I think it works quite nicely. But I do think if we could leave everything in Fudra for two years mm. before we bottle it and then bottle it, it would be amazing. Oh really? Yeah, okay. Because the wines, they'll lose, you know, we talked about it earlier. So that one of our problems is we are very new world. The wines are very fruit forward, very, you know, aromatic initially. And that's a function of bottling earlier. You're preserving a lot of that fruit. You can yeah. say maybe you're not working reductively, but you do. Um, and I think that, you know, you, the wine kind of finds itself a little bit more the longer you leave it. I mean, they become more stable as well. Even if you look yeah. at it just from a stability point of view. Yeah. You know, that wine is just that much more tannin, color, tart rate, all that, in that much more stable, leaving it for a longer period of time before going to bottle. Mm. Um, but yo, that's a big investment. Yeah. I need to double up on all my food. You need to yeah, take a cash yeah, yeah. flow knock for a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, no, that's, that's a 50-year that's a project, yeah. It's, so we would, we, we've done it now with Savage Red. That's mm -hmm. been the first step. Second step, we're not sure which one we will do at this stage. Mm -hmm. But, it, but it, the, the plan is in The place plan that, is to start slowly but surely doing it. Yeah, right. And that's why we bought this other building alongside here. You know, like my accountant said, well, he says, are you growing your production by 20% buying that place? I said, no. He says, well, why are you buying it? I said, no, we have to because, you know, we want to change the way we do it. And with hindsight now, we would be dead in the water if we didn't have And that. some other prick might buy it. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say that. <laughs> no, but it's like, um, you know, it is important. We've built a Vinatec now, you know. We've got our own library on site. We, we, can, we can start to look at these, you know, scenarios of increasing food, doing things like that, making it. it, it yeah. there's a, there's, the wheels are in motion. Yeah, there's added flexibility. Yeah, 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 yeah. Awesome. which is great. Cool. I interrupted, I apologize. No, no, no. So, so, I mean, on the range front, I mean, ideally, you know, wine, like I was going to talk about follow the line now. I mean, follow the line would be, um, if I could, uh, we, we did, we've done, I've done that before. So 2014 follow the line had a portion of 2013 in it. Um, you know, we can blend up to 15%. I mean, we don't always do it because obviously we want to show the purity of the vintage. Um, but at that time, we experimenting, it was new in the business, and, and the 14 was beautiful. I mean, the wine was just a little bit more complex when it hit the bottle, um, you know, and I, and I do think we've, we, I mean, we've started doing it again. You know, we actually actively in 2019 started doing it and um, keeping a barrel or two back. And, you know, you don't want to, I know the so purest... Some, some 18 end up in the 19, or is some 19 going to end up in the 20, or both? More than likely 19 end up in the 20. There's nothing that's ended up in the 18. The 18 okay. is the 18. Yeah. But the thing is, is that is from a purest point of view, you want to showcase the vineyard and you want to showcase the site. But, but at the same time, if I don't have the luxury of being able to do that, and I'm taking the same site and I'm keeping maybe 5 or 10% back, um, and blending that in just to add a level of complexity that can give my customer, you know, a better drinking experience or yeah. make a more complex rounded wine expressing that site. I don't see a problem with it. Yep. So it's not to say we'll do it with all the wines. We're just experimenting to see is it worthwhile 
making that jump to longer time in the cellar. Yeah. To so see how they behave in a two to five. Doesn't make a better wine in a six hundred. True to yeah. our style. Like that's the exactly. Yeah. So so follow the line is is I think you know with with the the, the seventeen was the first. It was a blend of we blended the Grenache into follow the line originally, um, also not knowing what to expect and a sin so in the market. 17 was the first vintage that was 100% Cinso. I say 100% Cinso, there's always a little smidgen of Syrah from that property in the, in the, you know, if we didn't do that, it would really look like rosé, so we need to just add a little bit of color. Um, so a few percent of Syrah, which I just find, I do it, I add it in the ferment, and it just, for me, it works. It's a, it's nice, it's a nice little parcel on that property just across from the Cinso vineyard. And um, 17, first vineyard that was a, a pure expression of, of, of that property, and, and Cinso on label. And yo, I love that wine. 18 was just a prettier version. It doesn't have the structure of 17. 17's leaner, tighter. All those things you don't expect of Sinso almost, you know, just like beautiful. And not, I mean, obviously you expect Sinso to be beautiful, but I mean, you know, leaner, tighter. The 18 is more pretty. It's, it's softer. It's more approachable. More of that Turkish, you know, rose water sounds better 18, than oh, Turkish okay. delight. 18. And then going on to the 19, We've gone for what I said to you earlier is, you know, where 18 was quite light, very easy to drink, soft tannins, um, function of the vintage too, I think. Um, 19 is just a little bit more vinous, a bit more savory. It's got that red fruit and, and rose water that's typical of Darling, but there's more substance to the wine, like slightly more, you know, robust tannins. Um, but still, you know, I say robust tannins, that's relatively speaking, you know, if you drink it next to a young Cabernet, it's going to yeah. seem like cool. Robust but, Cinso tannins rather than... Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. But um, you know that's the the thing with that wine is 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 just to try and bring a more vinous element to it as much as possible. So so without compromising on the style and and you know doing that 50% whole bunch. You know so we're getting a little bit of that red fruit component from the the, the slightly carbonic. I mean it's not carbonic fermentation, but that slight carbonic element. But then just I don't know. You like maybe a, t a touch more extract, not worrying about the temps and the ferments a little bit. You know getting a bit warmer. I don't know. We we're playing around and seeing what the results are. Thief in the Night, as I said to you, with the 19, we've, we've reined in already from 18, but 19 dropped it down to just over 20% whole, whole bunch. And I think the wine is just beautiful. It's also, it's, it's, there's a little bit more extract to it, but still in that style, it's very light and pure and fresh and a beautiful wine. I mean, it's, um, I think the 19 is just, every year, 17, look, the 17 was quite lean. It was 70% whole cluster, quite herbaceous. I think that wine, I've kept 40 cases back because I think in 10 years time, it's going to be amazing. Um, but I think the 19 is a more complete wine in youth. How it's going to progress in time, I don't know. Yeah. Um, Girl Next Door, as I said, you know, we, it's a whole weaning process of, of, of weaning that vineyard off water. Um, when I say weaning, we just stopped the water, you know, mulched it and, and off we went. And last year's crop was just incredible. Um, this year, it's been amazing. The canopy, the canopy dropped half its shoot length in one season mm. um, and it's picked up in 2020 back to where we were with irrigation without irrigation yeah you know it's a it's just mulch and compost mm. it's incredible and um so no nitrogen fertilization nothing we farm it organically there's no herbiciding or whatever but it's not certified or anything it's just yep. done from the point of view of of um you know just we're in a, sustainability. In a uh, sustainability and we're in a property development you have to be mindful yeah, of the fact even though we still get problems. blamed for everything yeah. we had one stage we thought about with a bird problem we have to net the vineyard we thought we had a, an idea to um, to bring some falconry guys in but we ended up not doing it because I had this paranoia that we were going to see this you know the, the neighbor's cat, cat flying <laughs> off into the distance <laughs> and the talons of one of the falcons yeah, yeah. so we had to can that idea yeah. 
but just to come on the on the organic side of things. So oh, just a so. just a air um, air gun uh, <laughs> air cannon in the in the, in most of the houses will be fine. Yes, it'll <laughs> be the biggest cause of a heart attack and stone having a state. Free up some property. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> better views than we've got. <laughs> but um, the, the, the organic thing, I mean, I, you know, guys like Johan Reinecke and that, they live, they've, I can't really comment on it. I mean, we, we, we would like to go that direction, but as I said to you earlier, it's not that knee-jerk thing. So yeah. it's been a long-term process with the girl next door. Yeah. Uh, the Savage Red Vineyard, the, the Langfervacht Vineyard has been farmed organically since 06. Um, we're busy with, a, we, we're looking to get that biodynamically certified and not from the point of view of being able, it'll say nothing on the bottle. It's just we want to create a sustainable site. So we're going to compost, we're going to do all of that stuff. Johan's been amazing. He's been helping us with all that stuff. Obviously, Yaku brings his knowledge to the party. I'm doing a biodynamic course starting this weekend just to try and figure out if, if we, I try to read Rudolf Steiner's book and I, I got bored by the end of page one. Yeah, right. So I yeah. kind of have now tried to take a little bit of another avenue. Mm. Um, but um, you know, it's, it's the girl next door, for example. We'd love to, oh, sorry, uh, uh, follow the line. It's a it's a ten year process. Last year we started going to the old traditional fleckfurter, that the, the just the furrow, basically the trench. The guys would plow every second row, yeah. put the prunings in, and add a bit of compost or cow manure, whatever the hell it might be, and put you know carbon back into the soil. Add, yeah. add all you what you need into the soil instead of putting it on top, because a lot of us put it on top. And we go and sleep lacquer at night because we think, oh, we put it down, some compost down. Meanwhile, the sun dries that stuff out in a few hours and it's of zero, I mean, it's not of zero benefit, but it's of yeah, very little benefit. Greatly reduced, yeah. Putting into the soil is amazing. So we want to do that now and go, uh, follow the line, for example. Well, we have been doing it and follow the line. But it's a huge, you take a vineyard that's almost 40 years old, that's had herbicide its whole life. They offset that by doing these trenches and putting carbon into the soil. So yes, you may be killing soil microbes by herbiciding, but you're actually adding back. So you're kind of balancing to a certain extent. You can argue that Roundup is not good. Um, but if you take that vineyard and you suddenly introduce weed competition, you'll kill the vineyard. You know, it's, you might not kill it, but you're going to drastically change that vineyard. You have to take a lot, it's a long-term game. Yep. And I learned that now when I was in Bordeaux, we were to produce- So incremental changes rather than- incremental changes yeah. so we would like to be our plan is to be as close to 100% to organic as we can within the next it's not 10 years anymore it's eight years but I mean you know we obviously started now two years ago so I'd say a third of what we're farming at the moment is organic uh, we'd like to get to the next level and obviously have everything and, and not from any kind of marketing point of view or whatever just because it, it is a, a good if I see the way the vines have reacted and girl next door what results we've achieved at, at Langfervacht, it's what results Johan Reinecke is achieving and Reinecke, um, there's, there's merits to it. But not going blindly into it and just doing it for the sake of being organic. We won't put it on the label. That's, I think, a very important thing because you need to do it for the right reasons and Johan does. Yeah. So yeah, so, so like uh, Pekingese Crib, Thief in the Night and Follow the Line, those aren't organically farmed. We're starting now with, with more of uh, those concepts also with Are We There Yet? We're mulching this year. We, in fact, Yaku's having a look at some chips now out in Montague, which we're going to start trucking to David's farm. Mm -hmm. So just the two po portions I lease from him. I don't. I buy the grapes from him, but it's the same two portions every year. Yep. And David's a bloody legend. He's a, he's just one of the nicest folks. So he's been super cool with with us for that project. And we obviously investing in that, so we we go in and do all of that extra work. And um, I think that'll have a, a, a really interesting. That's going to create a bigger canopy. So with Tariga, you can imagine small canopy, lots of light. Um, even though it is a fairly maritime, slightly cooler site, it's still warmish there. Small canopy, lots of light, bigger tannins, bigger extract, quite 
I'm wondering what it's going to be like with a slightly bigger canopy and with our you know de-stem policy at this stage maybe with a bigger canopy it may change it change, you, yeah, yeah. you never know yeah right. so we're learning as we go but I, I mean in a nutshell I suppose the the 19s or, or this year's release along with the savage at 18 is a pretty solid release I think I mean obviously in my opinion it's going to be a solid release but I think people who taste and buy the wines will will, will be really happy and they punch well above their weight at their price point which I think is pretty solid cool man yeah. well I'd be shocked if you said any different to be fair <laughs> <laughs> no but 19 looks like a, a very interesting vintage uh, I mean we're just getting a, a handle on it in terms of the wines now as more and more wines get released so yeah it's um, solid yeah yeah very solid yeah. solid yeah that's going to be cool to see where it ends up I mean it's um, I think these wines have got legs. I don't know, I drank a bottle of 13 Follow the Line, which was our maiden vintage last night. And um, mine is, I mean, the wine, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, where do these go? 13's not an old wine. But, I mean, that wine's got just heaps of primary fruit still and, and just looking beautiful. So it's, I don't think our style is going to be one that's going to age necessarily for long periods of time. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that, that people, I think it, other than border, I think it kind of applies to most regions of the world these days. Yeah. You know, leaving something for 40 years, you're more than likely going to be disappointed. Yeah, well, um, and, and you have to sell them so young, so they have to appear yeah. very drinkable yeah. in youth, and that's very exactly. hard to do both of those things at yeah. once. No, exactly. Yeah. So I think that, you know, we always say to people on, our, on the white, like three to five years, on the reds, five to eight, um, longer with interest. Yeah. And I think that's fair. Yeah. I think you, you, you're more often disappointed by old wines than blown away. But when you are blown away, it's like gambling. You yeah. never, you don't remember the times you lose, you remember when you win. Mm. You know, same with old wines. You yeah, remember the great ones, but you don't remember all the shit ones you've opened and yeah. well, you sort of remember you, you sort of compartmentalize them in your brain in yeah. the same area. Yeah. Whereas yeah. The, the real standout wines hit their own spot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, they get their own spot for sure. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, that's just rather more, you know, conservative on that side of things in, in terms of what we say to people, but yeah, see how we go. It's actually quite funny. We did a, one of the stories, I'd, uh, if I can tell it just for the interest, um, I've told it in a lot of tastings. We did a, I was asked to do a talk on biodynamics once. Now, let's phone a winemaker who doesn't know anything about biodynamics <laughs> and ask him to do a talk on biodynamics. Yeah, so I was yeah. like, okay, but it was just a private tasting group. And so Duncan agrees. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you can just wing it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Make I it up as you go. Heart surgery or, you know, like the, the, the inner workings of Serbian government. Uh, <laughs> so what else a, do you need to know? <laughs> I had a, no, no, look, I just took a different tag, um, I just took a different approach to the whole thing. So we, we it was a, just a wine tasting group and I think they thought I knew exactly what I was talking about. But um, I got old uh, Henry that used to work at Cape Point Vineyards. We, we, um, we, I got him to, I bought a little thing of basil down at the, 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 the friendly grocer in Nurtuk. I was still working at Cape Point at the time and bought some Rizzlers. And I'd, I mean, I'd long forgotten how to roll a joint. So I got Henry to roll these perfect little baseball bats. I'd, and, I'd, uh, I'd long forgotten how to roll. <laughs> now, I, I couldn't roll them as nicely as Henry did. Dude, so, you grew up in Durban, a surfer living in, where? No, I smoked my a fair amount of that stuff in my life, but I did stop many years ago. You know, it's, um, so I got to this tasting and we had these, um, I had really quite cool slides and quite sort of jokey approach to the whole thing. And it was quite an older, more conservative tasting group. And, I, and then these guys all sat down and I got there and, and, and I said, guys, in order for us to better understand the concept of biodynamics, we need to partake in the indigenous herb. And I sort of rolled these joints out onto the table. And all these guys, like the one oak, like sort of 
shifting his chair, like thinking, well, he's going to leave now and all that stuff. Yeah. You know, like very conservative type thing. Anyway, so needless to say, that's what alcohol is actually quite a wonderful thing. It's a great leveler, you know, even if people are a little bit uptight, it kind of evens the playing field as everyone has a few sips. Yeah. And um, yeah, this tasting, lubricant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This tasting group, you know, this guy, he, um, he uh, I, I just watched the way he changed through the night. And obviously everyone got sort of well-oiled in that now as we were doing the tasting and it was a fantastic evening, everyone was happy. And I was chatting to someone at the end and this oak that had been so judgmental in the beginning of the night, out of the corner of my eye, while I was talking to this guy, he was sitting there, I watched him slip one of those basil joints into his pocket. So I would have paid money to see him smoke that puppy later that night, but it's, um, he probably had a great time. He probably sold it to somebody. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure he smoked it. Making a profit. No, I'm pretty sure he smoked it. Eh? No, I'd love to actually ask him. Uh, I've never, I don't I, know, I can't remember who he is or, or what. I've never seen him again, but uh, I'd love to ask him. But I mean, it's not airy fairy. It's just it's uh, it's quite it's you know that's how people I think see it. Yeah. So I mean, we also have to change, and 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 it's I mean, knowledge is power. You need to know about it and and do it for the right reasons. So yeah, it's all cool there. Cool man. You've already mentioned your love of Burgundy and a bit of Barolo and obviously some Bordeaux. Um, what else are you drinking? What what South African wines do you buy and drink? So I think, you know, that in terms of South African properties, I went and picked up my 2017 Canon called Paul Sauer the other day. And there's few properties in this country that you walk into that there's sort of a, a feeling of almost, I don't want to blow too, too much sunshine up their backsides, but the feeling of greatness almost, yes, you know. Yeah, yeah. You drive into there, you drive through the vineyards, there's an aura about the place. Mm. And, um, and you don't get that anywhere else in this country, I don't believe. Um, Canon Corp is, and always has been my, from a lighty, you know, before, at, yeah, you know earlier, yeah. used to save cash to go, and, but then it was us buying Canon Corp Pinotage. Mm. Now I buy Cab and, 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 and Paul Sauer. And I think it, you know, so I, I love Canon Corp as a property. It's very different to my style and, and all of that, but it's just, you know, who cares? It's great wine. And it's going to be worth 3,000 Rand a bottle in a couple of years when it goes on the Strauss auction, which should be handy. I'll probably drink it all by then. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not buying it to resell it, I'm buying it to drink it. So it's. Um, That's what they all say, though. <laughs> and uh, no, look, I suppose it's, um, it'll, it's all relative. It depends on what, where that price goes. But it's. Uh, no, look, at the end of the day, I think in South Africa, there's a lot of great stuff. I, I, I probably drink more South African cab driven wines than, okay. than you know, things like the, the, the Rhone styles, I, I would imagine. Um, and then internationally, I, I love Burgundy. I mean, Burgundy is, is a stylistically, you know, I'm not looking to make Pinot um, or Pinot that tastes like Burgundy. Yes. I just love the purity of great Burgundy. Yeah, there's, right. there's something electric about those wines. Yeah. And, 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 if we, and that's what we're striving for at Savage. We want a, a, a purity and, and wines that are alive and have an energy to them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, trying to get that tension out of varieties like Sinsa and, and Grenache, I suppose, is, is, is going to be a challenge. But, mm. you know, we, I think we, we're heading in the right direction. You know, yeah. every year it gets better and better. Um, and then the north of Italy, of Italy I mean, uh, Piedmont in, in particular, I mean, it's just, I was very lucky to buy some old Italian wines from someone who's, been, who's helped me a huge amount. Uh, and just in terms of wine knowledge and stuff. And I sit back and drink those 20-year-old Barolos and that now, and it's like, oh my word, mm. amazing. I'll feel nothing in the middle of the week to crack a bottle of something really good and just smash yeah. it, just because it's just so damn delicious. Yeah. And I mean, I'm in the fortunate position to have been able to afford, afford those wines now, uh, which five, ten years ago I couldn't. So maybe I haven't in the past drunk as widely as, as some other guys. Um, you know, some guys have been very lucky, but, but often you need someone, um, you need friends who are prepared to share. And I think a lot of the, like if I look at our private clients, I mean, folks who we sell a lot of wine to, I'll go and do tastings for these oaks in Joburg. 
and I'll present my wines and we'll pull corks. And then they say, okay, well, let's hit the cellar now. And the guys are like, gung-ho, say, well, can I choose? And the, and the oaks are, yes, go! And, and the oaks are keen to pull the corks, and, yes. and they're keen to drink, and you need those experiences, you know, where mm. I've got a good mate, Martin um, Krajewski, he, he's got two properties, and a property in Pomerol and one in Santa Million, and then a, um, a business here called Aristea. Such a lacquer oak. What a champion, eh? He's, Martin must be 60-odd. We went, Buller Gerber and I, he's a good mate. We went and stayed with him last year in Pomerol. Yes, we drank good wines. Mm. I mean, old vintage Bordeaux and Burgundy. Um, it was incredible. You know, drinking old vintages of Chateau Ozone and things like that was just mind-blowing. So to have those experiences, you have to have those because that's, yeah keeps you motivated, keeps you driven. Pulling great corks is just, uh, it's becoming bloody expensive, but it's one of the, the great pleasures of life, if you love wine. Yeah, and the wine industry generally is is one of, uh, of sharing and generosity. Yeah. And most people are happy to to open up a, a good bottle of wine as long as you sort of yeah. give them enough uh, credits. <laughs> But you know the classic South African thing is like everyone, like the, the normal the case is everyone shows you that bottle mm. and then you go and drink other wine and yeah, then right. you get pissed and by the end of the night then, you know, they don't want to open it but then they open it yes. and then the next morning there's a half drunk bottle of the wine that they didn't want to drink. Yeah, with a cigarette in it or something. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and no one really appreciated it because yeah. everyone was pissed. You know? well, it was so, cork and no one noticed because it was... <laughs> Yeah. No, look, it's, uh, you've got to drink, I mean, it's, I, I know many people have made that statement before, yes. I've heard Mark say it a number of times, but if, you, if you're going to, you know, if you, if you don't drink great wine, you can't you ever... You don't know what it tastes like, so it's pretty difficult to make, to make great wine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Very true. Cool, man. Thank you, dude. Thank you for your time. Well, I thank you. It. I mean, I've jabbered on now for way too long. No, we're looking at a good, you know, probably 15 minutes out of that. <laughs> um, if you're lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>